Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we discussed how the Italian fascist party leveraged the chaos of the First World War in order to seize power. Today, we'll look at the rise of Nazism and the Second World War, with a focus on the ideology of fascism. Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello! And today we are going to, finally, wrap up our talk on fascism. Oh good, we got it all sorted out. (laughs) Problem solved. Problem solved. Done. Check. We have a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm going to try to uh, move a little bit more quickly over some things. I'm I'm going to hit all the main points definitely, but we got we we basically left things off in about 1925 last time, so we have two very very eventful decades to cover today. So uh, we'll we'll keep things uh, moving right along. Basically, the last thing we talked about was Hitler's failed coup attempt in 1923, right? The the Beer Hall Putsch, which um, weirdly, since putting that out, has been referred to a lot in the news. Um, so I hope that was helpful for everybody in, in navigating a few things in the last couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but this is a history podcast. We'll, we'll leave that where it is. What happens after this this coup attempt is that Hitler, who was injured in the fighting, you'll remember, and uh, arrested a couple of days later, was sentenced to five years for treason and ended up serving less than one year of the sentence, which is extraordinarily light considering what it is he tried to do. You'll also see, I don't know, you may have seen it floating around recently, you'll also occasionally see a newspaper article from the New York Times floating around about how like Hitler came out of jail from this experience like a sobered and chastened man who who seems a lot less extreme and blah 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 stuff like that it's uh it's it's funny in a in a sad sort of way but the truth of the matter is that you know his his time in prison doesn't do anything to take Hitler's edge off right like in, in fact this is the time in which he writes Mein Kampf he actually dictates the entire thing uh through the bars of his prison cell in which he lays out his entire well not an entire but a good chunk of his worldview vis-a-vis the superiority of the German race and yeah. the complicity of the Jewish people in most of the world's evils uh the relationship between Judaism and Bolshevism um, and lots and lots of other terrible, terrible things. Technically, the NSDAP, the, the Nazi party, was outlawed after, you know, they did a coup. Um, but for the next couple of elections, they were able to actually run 
by proxy. Like they just put a whole bunch of Nazi candidates into other parties onto their tickets. Um, yeah. And yeah, there were, there were a few smaller uh, right wing parties that they managed to basically take over and run as not actually the Nazi party, but definitely the Nazi party. The first time they do this in 1924, they managed to gain about 6% of the vote in Germany. And in 1926, when they run again, it's dropped to about 3%. German politics in this era are very fraught. Uh, governments don't tend to last more than about a year, for the most part. There are also a lot of political parties. Uh, I think the highest I saw was something like 37 different parties vying for uh, seats in parliament. Would that be like by vote of no confidence? That um, it didn't last? Yeah, that those those governments flipped over so fast. Yeah, yeah. They, these are all minority governments, right? So they they have to run on coalition uh, to yeah. get anything passed. And so you'd get up to confidence votes like a, a budget or something like that. And for whatever reason, the coalition would fall apart. The leading party wouldn't get the support that they expected. And uh, they'd be forced to dissolve parliament and go back to the votes. Okay, yeah. You see this type of government a lot more commonly in Europe, I think. They're, they're much more used to ruling by a coalition there. You know, we, we've seen it a bunch in Canada in the last couple of decades. Uh, in yeah. the U.S., it's just unheard of. But yeah, it's, it's just a, a very different style of, of ruling in a parliamentary system. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, remember all that we talked about in terms of like post-war Germany and the political landscape in that, in that sense, right? Whereas you might be looking at you know, five, six, seven or eight parties today, you you were looking at so many parties in this era because, yeah, you have your traditional like, you know, centrist party and you have your traditional just right of center and just left of center. But then you also have, you know, full on uh, fascists like the Nazis. Uh, mm -hmm. You also have monarchists because technically Germany has been a monar monarchy up until 1918 and that's really fresh. There are a lot of people running on the platform of we should reinstate the monarchy. Was there anyone left from the from the Oh, Wilhelm II was Kai still alive. Yeah, Wilhelm II was still alive. Okay. Yeah, he had been uh, he had been exiled after the war. I'm trying to remember where he was living. I feel like I feel like maybe the Netherlands or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't remember how long he lived after World War One. Yeah, quite quite a while. I can't remember exactly when he died, but long enough that the uh, the Nazis would end up in power and uh, actually trying to get his endorsement at one point, uh, which he <laughs> which he said no to <laughs> wisely. Um, fair. Yeah, yeah, fair. No, he he stuck around for a while, and there were a lot of people who went, yeah, we should we should reinstate him. He is the rightful ruler of of Germany. That was a that was a viable political position. Uh, in the 1920s in Germany. Then on the left, you have uh, socialists and communists who are very, very different parties in, in Germany because the communists are uh, looking towards the very new Soviet Union as a model for ruling and actually see the, so uh, the socialists as, as enemies. They see them as uh, collaborators and uh, they see them as just prolonging the uh, inevitable uh, collapse of capitalism and rise of communism. Gotcha. So not only do you have like these very disparate parties, you also have parties that normally would be more or less in alignment um, mm -hmm. that are fighting with each other, which makes coalition really difficult. So the initial attempts that the Nazis made uh, in the early 20s to build 
a base focused uh, very much on uh, the working class. So trying to kind of move uh, people away from the socialist camp on the basis of national uh, nationalism, as well as uh, veterans. There was this uh, there was this thing that was happening in in Germany at the time called the uh, I think it's Freikorps, the the Free Corps that was sort of halfway between like citizens militia and the uh, Veterans Association, where it was a bunch of like former soldiers from World War One who would be kind of organized in these social clubs that would be run by like former uh, commanders of the German army. None of them are conscripted, but all of them had served time and all of them had very similar politics. It's like the, the Legion, the Rodden Gun, and mm-hmm. the local militia got together. Yeah, 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 exactly. Those were the kind of people that the Nazis were very successfully courting. Um, and this isn't a small segment of the population, but there is also that whole thing where, like, yeah, some veterans probably didn't hold that sort of uh, stab-in-the-back type view, and those would be hard to bring around. Uh, a lot of workers would have been left-leaning rather than right-leaning, and they were really hard to bring around. And so it was kind of like they were just weren't really gaining traction. And so in an effort to widen the base, the, the Nazis decided to focus on widening their class appeal, especially the middle class. And so what you start seeing in Nazi campaigning in this era is a very like focused, almost like demographically tailored approach to campaigning. So you go to a, you know, a German union and you're going to be talking about job security and you're going to be talking about higher wages and quality of life. You go to a, uh, you know, a a small business association and you're going to be talking about lowering taxes and protections for small businesses. And um, all of this is going to be happening in a framework of Nazi ideology, which is like when it comes to that small business association, it's like, yeah, we're going to lower your taxes. By the way, your taxes are this high because of a shadowy cabal of Jews who control the world government. And we're going to make sure and root out that, that problem, but it's going to mean lower taxes for you. Gotcha. This all all tracks. mm -hmm. This sort of tactic is kind of, it sounds a little confusing or a little confused, But what you end up doing here is you get small businesses who are legitimately concerned about the rate of taxation because it is very high. Remember, they're going through a inflation crisis. Yeah, Uh, they're going through the uh, the issue of national reparations being paid under the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's been a significant drop in uh, manufacturing because of the, uh, the the occupation of the Rhineland by the French in the wake of the Treaty of Versailles. And it's like, okay, well, we have real like economic concerns here. And these guys are saying that they could fix it for us. Then you have other small business owners who are going like, well, we're actually doing okay. But like, I would like to get out under the thumb of the shadowy cabal. (laughs) (laughs) And people and people hear these messages in Nazi propaganda that they'll they'll just they'll latch on to the thing that they want to hear from it, if that makes sense. If you kind of throw enough spaghetti at the wall, something kind of sticks. And so there are a lot of people who hear this and go like, oh, this is dangerous. I don't like this at all. And they walk away. But the people who stick, they do stick for different reasons. And some of it is 
you know, the uh, the intense nationalism of the Nazis. It is we're going to stick it to France. Some of it mm-hmm. is the uh, racial purity aspects of it or the uh, anti-Semitic aspects of it. And some of it is this intensely um, it, it's called uh, autarky, which is this idea of a country's economy uh, being self-contained, being completely self-reliant, being uh, not reliant at all on any trait, being able to support an entire economy domestically, right? Gotcha. Okay. And after all of the issues that uh, that have come out of the uh, the First World War, this idea of autarky is really attractive to a lot of Germans. They want a self-sufficient Germany. The idea being that if Germany was self-sufficient, then there are a lot of other ways that it could assert itself on the world stage without other nations stepping in, right? If you can't put economic sanctions on Germany, then the only way to enforce something like, for example, reparations payments would be either just let them get away with whatever they like or go to war with them. And that's a pretty big step up. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that for one reason or another, people are, allow- are are able to overlook some of the stuff that doesn't matter to them and find things that do. This Nazi campaigning is extremely effective at using new methods of technology, uh, new methods of communication uh, for the 20s that, you know, now seem kind of quaint, but like they're using stuff like mass produced, like posting, posting bills and things like that, that are very like targeted slogans, targeted images. They're using very modern art. They're using very youth centered art. Um, the speeches are, uh, passionate in a way that is not common for politics up till that point. Because remember up until the 20th century, politics hasn't been a mass event, right? No, it's just been for the aristocracy essentially and so there was no reason to excite crowds with political speeches there's no need for it politics was a thing you did at the smoking club (laughs) not from a balcony in front of thousands would would they have had like radio ads yeah i mean we're we're kind of we're kind of stretching the era in which like commercial radio is available it's going to become more and more available through like the late 20s early 30s um, okay. But yeah, they, they did use uh, radio quite effectively as well as like very early television. So there's that like there's and, and Hitler was especially um, uh, skilled at exciting crowds with speeches. Right. Like that's that's one of the if, if you know, like a very small number of things about Hitler, like, yeah, there's a bunch of things that come first. But like dynamic speech maker is, is pretty high on the list. Right. Yep. It's up there. The other prong of their uh, political action in the in the mid twenties kind of thing is just brawling in the streets with communists, which you'll re- remember from Italy last time. Yeah. So the SA would go out and beat up communists, and communists would fight Nazis, and you know you wouldn't see the uh, the numbers or the level of violence that you did in Italy. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that it wasn't a major concern for a lot of German people. And, you know, there are laws passed that are trying to limit these types of political violence. But the Nazis were so good at it and so targeted with it that the generally conservative leaning governments tended to be a lot harder on the communists than they were on the fascists. And what this set up was this loop of a sort of environment or or sort of an atmosphere of permission this idea that like the fascists the the sa specifically were above some of these repercussions and 
there was also a fear of the SA that if you were to do anything that was like an actual punishment, like any real consequences, that they would escalate violence in response. Okay. And so there's this like crippling of the uh, authorities to really do a whole lot about the SA. And what that leaves is them able to fight communists with basically impunity. It was a give an inch, take a foot kind of thing. A little bit. Yeah. Okay. In 1928, the Nazis put forward uh, Eric Ludendorff, uh, a party member and a a World War One hero, as a presidential candidate. Um, Just to define a couple terms, the uh, the German uh, Reichstag at this point in time had both a president and a chancellor. Yeah. Um, It's actually more or less what what Germany does now. Is that true? Do they still have a president? I should double check that. Anyway, it, it's a it's a fairly common system in in uh, Europe. Basically, the um, president is the head of state, and the chancellor is the head of government. So it would be more or less analogous to a prime minister. Like it's one of the elected uh, members of parliament who is like the head of one of the parties. Okay. Okay. Just to kind of help center us a little bit. I know it's a little bit different uh, system. So yeah, Ludendorff went for president in 1928. He won only 1.1% of the vote. This is very much like a low point in political success for the Nazis. And then in 1929, uh, the stock market crashes in October. This is potentially the best thing to happen to the fascist movement in the early 20th century. Yeah. As much as we talked about the trauma of the First World War and the damage that it did to various societies in the first couple of parts, when you look at what actually emerges from that event in terms of fascist movements, Italy is the main one by far. There are other smaller ones, but Italy is by far the most successful. Mm-hmm. And as we talked about, the German movement that came out of specifically World War I wasn't actually successful. It failed in 1923. And all accounts point towards the Nazis continuing to kind of decline over the, the, the course of the 1920s. In contrast, the Weimar Republic started becoming more and more uh, stable as, as we went through the 1920s. Not always for the best reasons. Uh, the president from 1925 on, a guy named Paul von Hindenburg, was again a World War I leader, a military guy, absolute monarchist. Um, sorry, not absolute monarchist as in absolute monarchy, but like was definitely a monarchist. Um, and he was president of a Republic that he did not believe in. He thought that what the German people needed was a strong ruling hand. So the leadership for several years before the great depression begins is essentially president Hindenburg taking more and more power under the role of president and taking uh, and leaving less and less with the actual parliament because all of that uh, minority government interparty fighting that we talked about he just sort of got tired of it and realized with the help of some advisors that the constitution that had been set up for germany in this point uh, in this period had some like pretty major loopholes in it and so he used a method that he called the 25 48 53 method this is named after three articles in the constitution so oh, okay article 25 the president can dissolve the reichstag at any point in time article 48 the president can sign bills into law without the reichstag article 53 the president can appoint the chancellor these are simplifications 
But what that meant was that rather than like the usual method of like whichever party gets the most seats in parliament, their leader gets the chancellorship. Hindenburg just gave the chancellorship to whoever he favored and basically tasked them with building a strong enough coalition that if they succeeded, great, Hindenburg got his way. And if they failed, Hindenburg could just dissolve the parliament and sign bills into law however he wanted while it was dissolved. That doesn't sound like a loophole. That sounds much bigger than a loophole. <laughs> oh, it's it's a problem. Oh. But what it does is it does cut down on some of the infighting between parties because now, rather than fighting with each other, they're fighting for uh, favor with the president. Yeah. And then the stock market crash comes around and it is uh, it's it's pretty bad in Germany. There is a lot of unemployment and mm -hmm. their economy already wasn't in a great place due to those reparations payments. Right. Weimar Germany is also arguably the first welfare state in uh, the 20th century in Europe and them taking care of the unemployed and the sick and so on. It's expensive to run a program like that, right? It's expensive at the best of times. Then you pile on the unemployment and all of a sudden the system is no longer able to just like financially handle the number of people who are out of work. Yeah. And this is both devastating to the working class who uh, many of them find themselves unemployed. And it's very worrying to the middle class who tend to weather it a little bit better, but tend to like worry about the state of Germany because of it. And often this manifests in like hoarding wealth rather than spending it in case of further catastrophe. Makes sense. In the 1930 election, two states make the biggest gains. And I think you can probably understand why. The two parties that make the biggest gains after this crash are the Nazi party and the communists. The Nazis gain 18% of the vote after uh, this uh, this stock market crash. Remember, the things that they're promising are economic recovery, mm -hmm. economic independence, yeah. the abdication of responsibility under the Treaty of Versailles, which most Germans saw as a major economic drain on them. They very much position themselves as the state has failed to protect us economically. We are the ones who can make changes that will save us from the uh, ravages of free market capitalism. American-style capitalism is what they would say. Okay, yeah. The communists, similarly, are proposing economic uh, alternatives. <laughs> now, what ends up happening out of this is that while neither of them are the biggest uh, party, the, the actual biggest party is the, um, the Socialist Party, between the Nazis and the communists, they hold 40% of the seats in the Reichstag, which is a formidable level of control. Yeah, especially when nobody can grab a, ma a majority and need to rule by coalition. So Hindenburg doesn't like Hitler at all. Well, he thinks he's trouble, basically. But he also doesn't like the socialists, who are the biggest party, and he doesn't like the communists. So he decides to uh, appoint the chancellorship to a guy named Brüning from the uh, Catholic Center Party, who is the fourth place in seats held in the Reichstag. The Catholic Center Party is a fairly centrist, maybe a little bit left of center party, but their main focus is on the rights of the minority Catholic population in the south of, of Germany, which tended to not be terribly well taken care of 
in the uh, Prussian-dominated Protestant Germany. So they're looking out for themselves. So Hindenburg sees the Catholic Center Party as like a party that that he can manipulate, right? Yeah. The Nazis take this as a sign that they're either going to become a footnote in history or they need to put their shoulder to the wheel and like make things happen. If there's one concept I want to sort of frame a lot of what we talk about today with, it's momentum. The the thing about presenting yourself as the only right alternative, the only winning alternative, is that you have to keep winning. The moment you start losing ground, your main argument is destroying itself, self-evidently. It's a dangerous way to do politics, right? Yeah. The Nazis over the next two years spend their entire time well brawling with communists but also campaigning hard on these economic points that we've been talking about talking about all of these things that they're going to do to liberate germany from these uh economic perils put on them by the rest of the world and simultaneously if a little more quietly talking about liberating germany from the economic problems put on them from within by jewish people Mm -hmm. they try to keep that to a minimum they bring that out in audiences where they think it'll play in audiences where they don't they just sort of don't mention it they're very targeted with their their information at this point okay however as we've talked about numerous times i mean we did the entire uh, episode on it it's not as though anti-semitism is unpopular Um, yeah there are a, a lot of people that are very okay with that message there's another interesting dynamic at play here which is that the main support that the fascists have in not necessarily in passing legislation in the house, but in spirit are the communists who, yes, I know they're spending all their time fighting with, but (laughs) keep in mind that from a communist point of view, they see that the best thing to happen or they, they consider the best thing that could possibly happen to Germany is the collapse of capitalism. And as in, in this period, the fascists are very much considered like a, distilled form of capitalism which is not how it's considered today but essentially they saw hitler as an incredibly unstable capitalist force and they went well we hate the guy but he's going to be the one that topples capitalism in germany which is where we step in so this is great and instead of forming that and this is what we talked about earlier instead of forming forming any coalition with the socialists uh, the communists actually push for further fascist control, which is a really interesting dynamic. Hmm. In July of 1932, the Nazis take 37% of the vote. This is a yeah. this is a big proportion of the seats. Especially if they're used to coalitions. Mm-hmm. Hitler demands the chancellorship. He says, I've earned it. Hindenburg still doesn't like him. He prefers a guy named uh, von Papen, who's again from the Catholic Center Party. By the way, the Catholic Center Party was also pretty okay with like the idea of monarchy, which is why Hindenburg keeps going back to them. <laughs> and he offers Hitler the vice chancellorship instead. He's thinking like, well, Hitler is just looking like he's kind of a blowhard is what he's thinking, right? Like if we just give him a vice chancellorship, he'll kind of go away basically. Yeah. Yeah. But Hitler wasn't ready to take second place. He really, really, really believed in the movement. So what he did was basically lock up the Reichstag uh, legislatively. 
he basically blocked any bills that were trying to go through. And remember, nobody else could really build a good enough coalition to pass anything, right? The socialists wouldn't work with the, the Nazis, obviously. The communists supported the Nazis' disruption tactics. So the Catholic center can't pass anything. You know, the socialists can't pass anything. It's it's a stalemate. And the parliament has to go to another vote just a couple of months later in uh, November of 1932. The, the Nazis lose some ground. That's only 33% of the seats now rather than 37. But they're okay. still the largest party in the Reichstag. And Hitler again goes to Hindenburg and says, you need to make me chancellor. I've won this. I deserve it. Make me chancellor. So there's some back deal. There's some backroom dealings. And essentially what they land on is that von Papen concedes. He says, okay, I'll be the vice chancellor. But like, listen, I'm going to be the one like kind of running things. The cabinet is going to be like 10 members from Papen's party from the Catholic Center. There's going to be like two out of 12 that are actually Nazis. Most of them are not Nazis. This is not like a, we're giving you control of the entire Reichstag thing. We're giving you the title that you feel like you've earned. But like the assumption here is that they can kind of keep Hitler in control. Yeah. From the Catholic Center Party's standpoint and from Hindenburg's standpoint, as monarchists and as conservatives... They see collaborating with the fascists as preferable over collaborating with socialists or with communists. This is the way that they see uh, being able to run the party uh, without turning it over to these uh, left-wing interests that they see as incredibly uh, dangerous to the country. Yeah. They also do see some goal alignment with the things that the Nazis are talking about. Fiscal conservatism, uh, mm-hmm. the the anti-Semitism is right along their lines, the nationalism, the anti-French sentiments. Those are all okay. So they're kind of going like, okay, well, he's talking about revolution and stuff, but like there's there's this concept in politics that keeps coming up. And we talked about it with, with Mussolini too, right? It's like, well, once he gets in power, like he'll it'll temper him even now yeah yeah yeah, it'll temper him like the realities of running a country it's easy it's one thing to 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 campaign it's another thing to actually run a country he'll mellow Mm -hmm. out no problems i was gonna say this is where things really take a turn that's not true things took a turn a while back but here's where things tip over the edge where it's like it's just not coming back now yeah on the 27th of february 1933 so just a couple weeks after uh hitler's given the chancellorship uh, yeah. The Reichstag building is set on fire by a Dutch communist. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually, it was actually thought a long time that it was possible the Nazis set the fire themselves. Yeah. To the best of our understanding right now, no, they didn't. It was actually a very angry young uh, Dutch communist. Um, <laughs> but what happens next is that the Nazis use, and it begins the next day, they use the excuse of this fire. They say that this is a prelude to a full-on communist assault on Germany. And they mm-hmm. uh, they use that excuse to rescind many of the uh, civil liberties that German citizens enjoyed. They took away uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, habeas corpus, like a lot of the, like, the big ones, like the really major yeah. ones. All, uh, all in the pretext of rooting out this communist threat, because clearly this was the the opening salvo. It couldn't possibly be one troubled guy, right? Whether or not uh, this is a like massively coordinated attack or like one lone guy doesn't really matter as much as the rest of the stuff that comes from it, right? Yeah, the buildings are like 
you know, it, it's it's buildings, number one. They're not that badly damaged, really. The SA, the stormtroopers, are also basically given free reign to attack communists wherever they feel like. It's, it's open season on communists. Uh, a number of people are killed. Over 4,000 communists are arrested. And the Nazis start calling for the ban of the communist party. So it's, it becomes illegal to be a communist in, in Germany. Mm-hmm. In March of 1933, the Enabling Act is passed. This act grants Nazi leadership, like the cabinet, the right to pass laws without the consent of either, either the Reichstag or the president, which is normally needed. So normally you would need to like propose a bill in parliament, have it passed by parliament, have it signed by the president. The Enabling Act bypasses all of that. Quick question. Yeah. How did the socialists feel about this? Like they were they were the, the biggest party. I know they were kind of uh, um, uh, against the communists at this point, but they, they still must have seen them as some sort of brothers in arms being as left as they are. Um, well, for, first of all, they aren't the biggest party anymore. Uh, right. After right. the 1933 elections, they're, they're smaller. It's it's a okay. complicated it's a complicated thing because there was so much animosity between the communists and the socialists like it ran both ways um mm-hmm. not nearly as vehemently from socialists to communists but keep in mind that the socialists basically saw the communists as a bunch of hardline radicals who wouldn't work with them to make even incremental changes to society for the better in the hopes that society being bad would lead to its collapse and them being able to put Leninist communism into place. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a very diverse group of people here, right? And of course there are concerns from the socialists. Absolutely. There are concerns from the socialists, but there are two things at play here. Number one, they're not coming for socialists. They're coming for communists. And there's sort of this feeling that like, well, there is a big enough distinction there that it's not, it's not us, basically, right? But but wouldn't they have looked at what the Italian fascists were doing for all socialists mm-hmm. and seen the connection at all? Yeah, I, I mean, I think what I'm maybe not doing the best job communicating here is that this is seen as a specific action against the Communist Party in particular in uh, response to a specific event. So okay, so we're, so we're looking less at, big picture. Yeah, we're looking at one point on a line before it's yeah. been graphed into a line, right? At this point, it's gotcha. just a point. So there is that, and yeah, there are people that are, that are raising concerns. You're absolutely right, but like the other side of this is that while they are one of the largest parties in parliament, the coalition that exists in parliament that holds the majority is the Nazis, mm-hmm. the Catholic Center Party who are monarchist centrists um, and decidedly not socialist. Mm -hmm. Various other smaller monarchist uh, parties and various other smaller right-wing parties, like nationalists, sometimes uh, full-on racist, Aryan supremacist parties. And in the face of that coalition, the socialists don't actually have any power to do anything about it because being large isn't the same as being in the majority coalition, which they yeah, are not part sense. of, which they're not gotcha. part of at all. Yeah. And part of the reason that they're not part of it is because of the co- the communists' unwillingness to work with them. 
Hmm. Right. And so that leads to further resentment of the communists. It's kind of like, well, you wouldn't be in this situation if you had just worked with us. When things get really bad, in general, people tend to need to take care of their own first. Yeah. And things are really bad here. Like, this is a democracy in massive crisis. The thing about fascists getting into power, and we saw it with Italy too, right? Is they don't get into power without the concession of mainstream conservative legislators. Yeah. They can get very close. Hitler did a, a, a very good job of getting pretty far, but he still never got bigger than 37% of the vote. He needed <laughs> that coalition with other conservatives in order to get big. So these the, the politics of this era are all about coalition. It's all about who decides to work with who. And if the conservatives had been that concerned about Hitler and the danger that he posed to the country, they could have caucused with the socialists and formed a majority that did not include the fascist movement. Yeah. They could have looked at Italy and said, that's where we could be headed. Let's not go there. And just worked with different parties. They could have even tried it and dissolved the parliament and hoped for different results in the election. There are many different options that were present there. And based on the ones that were were in front of them, these conservative groups decided to work with Hitler because they thought they could keep him in control. And they couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So the Enabling Act as we talked about, allowed them to basically start passing laws with impunity, right? And this is going to be more or less the legal basis of the rest of the Nazi regime in Germany. They're going to point back to this specific act, which, by the way, was voted in with a, an overwhelming majority in the, in the Reichstag. They, they voted this into, into existence for them. Everything yeah. perfectly legal, perfectly democratic. So this is all in, in March of 1933. April 1st of 1933. Uh, the Nazis declare a national boycott of all Jewish businesses. It begins immediately. Hmm. A big portion of the strategy behind the solution to the Great Depression for the Nazi party was if there isn't enough social welfare to go around, let's have a discussion about who gets social welfare. And their first target for all of this are Jewish Germans. And the argument is that they're not real Germans. That's the argument for it. And what happens, what happens because of this is that, number one, the amount of, or the number of people requiring aid under the new, require, uh, under the new um, criteria drops immensely, which means that there's more aid available for those who are eligible. So what it looks like happens is that the Nazis essentially make money appear out of nowhere and everyone who's unemployed starts getting those benefits that they were coming to expect from the state. And it looks like they're doing a good job. Yeah. They're in the middle of an I'm, economic crisis and it kind of feels like they're solving it a little maybe. I'm sure there's some confirmation bias going in on the racism there too. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, a hundred percent, of course. Yeah, so they start with uh, they start with the uh, the the boycott. Look at how much they're struggling now. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So there's the boycott of the businesses. A week later, April seventh of nineteen thirty-three, the law for the restoration of the professional civil services passed, which bars all non-Aryans from both the legal profession and the civil service, and. Germany at this point in time has a very expansive definition of civil service. So this isn't just like people working at the DMV or like, 
you know, the, the, the actual government itself. It's also teachers. So post office, like very, very broad ideas of who exactly a civil servant is. And Jews are banned from serving in any of these roles. The Nazis were um, very keen on education. They were very keen on indoctrinating kids as early as possible. And the one thing that they didn't want was kids with Jewish teachers. In July of 1933, we're moving quickly. All of the opposing uh, political parties are raided. Any resources are taken from them. They're all disbanded and they're all banned. So you are no longer allowed to belong to any political party other than the Nazi party, effectively making it a one-party state. And this begins with the communists for reasons of the Reichstag fire, and then move to the socialists because they're basically communists, right? And then the the purge kind of continues to move slowly left, or sorry, slowly right as it goes, um, finding broader and broader reasons to raid these parties and come up with reasons that they are enemies of the state, essentially. So so that that happens all at once or it, it's spread out a little bit just a little bit not by much it, it's it's hit pretty hard pretty fast essentially within the course of a month oh okay yeah mm-hmm. july also sees all uh naturalized jews stripped of their citizenship and it passes laws for uh compulsory sterilization of certain citizens uh that meet particular criteria so this is where you really see that um, the, eugenics, yeah, yeah, the eugenics movement come into it. And by criteria, I mean mentally ill, um, yeah. certain chronic illnesses. They'll test for intelligence uh, by various means and sterilize based on that. There are myriad different reasons that you could be sterilized. So all of this is to say that, like. All the stuff leading up to the Holocaust is there from the very beginning and is fa- and in fact is very prominent in their policies and yeah. in the policy implementation. It's being implemented as quickly as all of the economic stuff that's going in. So while they're working on job creation, while they're putting in, you know, FDR New Deal style public works to put people back to work and like, yeah, they are completely getting rid of unemployment. At the same time, they're also getting rid of unemployment by making certain people completely ineligible for it, stripping people of their citizenship so that, for example, any Jews who had recently immigrated to uh, Germany, if it was recent enough, there are now grounds for deportation back to the country that they came from. So mm-hmm. they were just rounding up new immigrants and, and sending them back, essentially. These two policies, the uh, the economic gains and the anti-Semitism and eugenics, go hand in hand. Uh, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. You get all of that money freed up. You get those jobs freed up by implementing anti-Semitic policies. Yeah. The other ways that they're putting jobs back into place are similarly focused on taking certain members out of the, the workforce. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the role of various members of the family in the household. So there's a strong push to get German women out of the workforce by focusing on the role of the mother in the family as being like a source of new germans basically like they very much encourage pregnancy even out of wedlock yeah um which is really oh. interesting like as 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 you know as traditional oh. as uh, as traditional as germany tended to be they had zero issues with with children out of wedlock because it meant you know new aryan babies running around they were very happy about that 
<laughs> but there there is this like propaganda push to create jobs or, or not create jobs, but uh, eliminate unemployment by getting people to voluntarily remove themselves from the workforce. Because Weimar Germany, women were fairly like at a, at a somewhat higher percentage than average in Europe were entering the workforce. And it was kind of like, well, if we can get them out, we are both uh, enforcing a very like patriarchal traditional view of like the family and the, the family as a unit uh, of the state. But we're also like freeing up jobs for men. Mm-hmm. You, you said uh, pregnancy out of wedlock. Would there would that be more so a single mother sort of thing? Would that have any correlation to widows from World War One? Uh, not particularly. Or is it straight up just? Yeah. It's, okay. It's not as though it was. It's not as it's, though it was like uh, encouraged. Uh, more so that it was not a social taboo the way it would be in other places in Europe. Um, okay, fair there, enough. Yeah. There, there was like, especially when you get into the war, there's there's frequent uh, instances of you know soldiers having uh, multiple mistresses when they're at home, things like that. That is just that's fine. They're, it's considered fine, but a lot of it is this role of women in society as you are the ones who are giving us. Uh, the next war's soldiers, essentially. It's a really weird and demeaning view of of women, um, which is nothing to be surprised about when it comes to Nazis. But like, it's one of the places where like the rubber really hits the road in terms of the view of the individual versus the role of like a uh, part of the state. You know okay. what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, they're being viewed as so utilitarian in this in this sort of role of, of motherhood it's not as though motherhood was being held up as a uh, virtuous thing by you know through through some sort of like appreciation of of you know the work that it takes to to raise a child or you know the you know an idealism of, of the family it's like it's like well this is how we get more citizens and yeah like, that's kind of it like it's very mechanical yeah, I, I'm just used to it being sort of couched in the traditional family thing, right? Yeah, no, it's not even that. It's like women, you need to be strong in order to bear many children for the, the Reich. For the fatherland. Mm-hmm. The essay becomes a real problem in sort of 1933, 1934. The leader, uh, Ernst Röhm, is really becoming a problem for Hitler's relationship with like the professional army in that he wants continued like support for the SA, legitimization for the SA, similar to what uh, Mussolini would have done for the black shirts. But the army hates them. They see them, they see the SA as being completely out of control, not really uh, fitting into traditional like uh, hierarchies. And so based on all of this, Hitler makes a calculated move. And between June 30th and July 2nd of 1934, there is a political purge. This is known as the Night of the Long Knives. Long Knives, yeah. This is where uh, several hundred members of the stormtroopers, the SA, are killed. And uh, this is all in conjunction with Himmler wanting to expand the autonomy of the SS. Uh, This is where the SS becomes like the state police in a meaningful way in helping to overthrow the SA, the very paramilitary force that helped the Nazis come to prominence in the 20s. What was the SS before that? It was actually a uh, subsection of the SA, but it was seen as like a very elite core of the SS or of the SA. Sorry. So it was like Himmler had this weird idea of like 
he saw it as somewhere between like Jesuit priests and samurai and Teutonic knights. Like he had this very like religious, very like purity based vision of the SS where they're like, they're not like the SA, like the SA, a lot of them were basically there for the paycheck. They would have fought anybody if they, if the pay was right and sure, why not fight for the fascists? They're just the thugs. Yeah. Yeah. Thugs is, is the perfect word for them. The SS was seen as more of a, yeah, like a warrior monk sort of like we only take the most Aryan of Aryans and we only take the most devoted to the Nazi cause and we have uh, restraint where the SA don't. And, and you know, like that sort of thing, like he saw it as very, very elite. And so hmm. basically they, as part of this process, the SS disavows their connections with the SA and uh, uh, distances themselves from it. But they do they do originate in the SA. Oh, okay. Another weird quirk of of history comes along in in August second of nineteen thirty four, where President Hindenburg dies. Normally, on the death of a president, a new election would be held. Um, the man was like eighty six. He was he was very very old. I think there was some expectation that this was coming, because uh, a couple of days before his death. Uh, using their executive powers, basically, the Nazis pass a new law saying that on the death of a president, the powers of the president, the offices of president will be merged with chancellor into a single office. That makes Hitler now the head of state and the head of government. Yeah. The military and the civil service are asked to swear a personal oath to Hitler. Oh, good. And that's essentially the end of any semblance of a German state apparatus as it was known under the Weimar Republic. Yeah. In September of 1935, the Nuremberg Laws are passed. These are specifically restricting the place of Jewish people within German uh, society. This is where you get laws against, for example, marriage between Jews and Germans, which is how they would be referred to in these laws. This is where you get a demarcation of citizenship, where only German blood citizens are considered citizens. Uh, the rest uh, of the people residing in Germany are considered subjects and have limited legal rights. And the wording of the Nuremberg Laws allow exclusion of citizenship based on your politics. So be found with uh, with communist literature and have your citizenship stripped from you. Gotcha. I think this is good a place as any to take a break. And uh, when we come back... We'll talk about uh, what's been going on in Italy the last few years, because we've been ignoring them a little bit. So, yeah, let's take a break here and uh, we'll come back to that. Back on HI 101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hi. Hello. Sorry, and, that uh, was very chipper for our subject. I'm sorry. <laughs> fine. I'll, <laughs> I'll take any moment of levity I can get right now. You know what, man? I've been reading about this stuff from from the start. It's been it's been months. It's been months. I'm, I'm, it, I'm ready to do something a little bit lighter, I think. I, <laughs> or at least a little bit less recent, at the very least. You've talked to me about this project like almost a year ago for the first time. Yeah, it's something like that. It's it's close to a year, if not if not actually a year at this point. So, no, I'm 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 ready to joke. I'm ready to I'm ready to clear a lot of books with like a lot of like very dark covers off of my <laughs> coffee table. <laughs> it's gonna be nice. It's gonna be fresh. Anyways, 
we went over a bunch of early like Nazi seizure of power stuff, which was really fast and really complete. And like, yeah, definitely relied on a couple of like taking advantage of some some opportunities. But once they got in power, like don't really mess around. Right. The the apparatuses that the Nazis put up around the state and around society are something that's known as like the dual state. Meaning that in a lot of cases there would be they, they would leave the regular public apparatus in place and they would just build a completely parallel Nazi one. Right? So they would have like, I don't know, they would have like the standard like local police force, but they would also have the the Gestapo, which seems kind of inefficient, but what they end up doing is like both blurring the lines between what's party and what's official. Mm-hmm. And they sort of sidestep the need to really like dismantle an entire state. Mussolini, in comparison, he got to power after playing like a very dangerous game of chicken, right? You remember yeah. all of that March on Rome stuff and, and got made prime minister and, and got given kind of emergency powers. But when he gets into power, he's not the sole ruler. And I mean, neither was Hitler, but like he he effectively was within a couple of months and he actually was within a year and a half or so right Mussolini was never sole heir or sole heir sole sole ruler of Italy um he still technically reported to the king Victor Emmanuel III and that made working within power both easier and harder in certain ways he has an extra legitimacy that that Hitler uh never really or, or that Hitler had to work much harder to establish for himself. Uh, Mussolini was able to just step into that as as prime minister. Yeah. But at the same time, he still had to keep up these like airs of, of reporting to the king. He still had technically some checks and balances on his powers, even though he had been given these emergency powers to uh, rule as dictator. And essentially what that means is that it takes him, oh, three years or so of work to kind of transform the the Italian state into a fascist state rather than the few months that Hitler just sort of imposed on the entire German state because you know he just made these sweeping reforms to economy and to the way that industry was was uh organized and to law and like all this stuff right Mussolini has to like piece by piece uh worm his way into all of this stuff right so essentially 1925 to 1927 for Italy is all making the state fascist so dividing the entire economy i think we talked a little bit about this last time into uh, a corporatist economy and yeah meaning that like there's there's 22 different cross-class corporations in italy that represent the all all the sectors of industry so you know construction or hospitality or entertainment or cereals was one i think uh like meaning like grains like like grain uh farming uh textiles things like that and the idea on paper from an ideological standpoint is that for the uh construction industry right the corporation is going to be made up of representatives from or or represent people from you know all the way from like the guy you know carrying lumber to the petit bourgeoisie like wealthy person who owns a construction company that that makes millions of dollars a year mm-hmm. and it would have representatives from every single uh you know strata in between you have foremen you have uh, subcontractors whatever all of this stuff 
what ends up happening in practice is that essentially the the board of corporations is just 22 different fascist party members each claiming to represent one of these divisions so while it's talking about having like greater representation in a cross-class sense it essentially strips most people of any direct representation in government all under the premise of collectivization for better working conditions so I mean, a lot of people do end up with slightly better working conditions under this, but like not enough to warrant the radicalization of society that you would see. Like you see like a modest increase in median wage and you see like the implementation of the 40 hour work week and some other things that like, don't get me wrong, are, are, are victories uh, for yeah. working people, but like are also being achieved in kind of bread and butter liberal democracies elsewhere in Europe by pressure from socialist groups in more of the syndicalist tradition than the, the communist tradition. So like a lot of like labor unions and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Strike action, pushing for better working conditions. So they're, they're claiming all these big things, but they're not really achieving more. And in a lot of cases, achieving less than what you would see in a regular uh, uh, republic at this point in time. In reality, this is just a way to like enrich the party members. Yeah. There is this eye towards restoration of an empire, right? I mean, remember what what we talked about with fascism is like this obsession with the past and and obsession with decay, right? And this attempt to like counteract decay. So when call back to a time when they were great. Yeah. And so when you have Italian fascism, of course that's Rome. Right? Like of course that's Rome. Where else do you point? It's gotta be Rome. It's gotta be Rome. There's this belief from both a mystical standpoint and a practical standpoint that Italy as it stands in the mid 1920s, it can't hack it against the rest of Europe. And this is a sobering realization for Italian leadership. This is something that they've been trying to overcome since Risorgimento in the the 1870s, right? They want to be a world-class power. But every time they step up, it doesn't work out for them because they're not a world-class power. Not, not this millennium. No, 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 no. So there's this thought that like, okay, well, we can't actually restore the empire. And, you know, I mean, in their, in their mind, that's things like control of Dalmatia and like pushing into Yugoslavia and like all of that stuff that we kind of talked about last time. Well, and in, in the and in the the Italian episode as well, uh, Italian uh, unification, they kind of realize that they can't really do that without just having more population, more resources, more time, more industry, and this is all referred to collectively as a concept as uh, spazio vitale, living space. Um, okay, this is a term that will also be used in German, uh, Lebensraum. Uh, you may have you may have heard of that one a little bit more frequently. Ah, uh huh. This this idea that the, the Italian people deserve enough space to grow and thrive, right? Like this is a very like nationalist idea, but it's also a very like social Darwinist idea, right? Got like, to spread it. Yeah, you need the resources to live and to grow and to overcome. So with Italy being essentially contained to the north in in Europe and unwilling to risk war with much more powerful neighbors there, their eye turns immediately to those 
relatively sparse African holdings that they've gained since the 1870s. Remember, both Germany and Italy kind of had a mini rush for Africa in the 1870s with this idea that, you know, real empires have colonies and therefore we need colonies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Italy had gained control of uh, Libya from the Ottoman Empire in 1911. Oh, okay. And... They decided that, you know, hey, it's right across the Mediterranean. Uh, Rome was a Mediterranean empire. Um, What we should be aiming for, rather than thinking of it as like spreading out into Europe, we should be aiming for Mediterranean superiority. We should control the Mediterranean. Marum Nostrum, I believe, is the the term for it. I've heard that one too, yeah. Our sea, essentially. Um, Okay, yeah. So they they look to Libya and they go, yeah, that'll work. We can spread out there. And... Beginning in 1927, they settle 150,000 Italian people in what's known today as Libya. There was some local resistance to this. (laughs) There usually is. This led to pacification. There's this uh, there's this myth about Italian fascism. And the myth goes like this. Sure, it was extremely violent when it began. But compared to, you know, after they got into power, it was essentially... Uh, a, a tame regime and like yeah they were totalitarian but compared to the holocaust or compared to the crimes of the ussr italy was barely even worth considering as a bad power allied with terrible powers definitely but not so bad if you ever hear this the the answer to that is it's a, is essentially just libya that's the answer to it this pacification effort of the local bedouins leads to over 60,000 deaths of people just just put to death in Libya. The concentration camps are put in place to kind of round up and reallocate Bedouins so that the Italians can have all the best farmland. There are 100,000 Bedouins forcibly expelled from their homes in this in this action. Uh, This is this is genocide. It meets all the criteria of it. What happens in Libya is is absolutely shameful. And yeah, when you start comparing numbers, sure, uh, yeah, Holocaust is way worse. They weren't they weren't good. The things that happened in Italy were not good, and what they did to Libya was absolutely terrible. Meanwhile, at home, Mussolini has a bit of a crisis in terms of his relationship to the Catholic Church. Uh, Mussolini is a, an avowed atheist, I suppose. He was definitely not religious and had uh, had butted heads with the Catholic Church on many occasions. Mm-hmm. Tr- trouble is, he was trying to lead uh, Italy. I don't know if you've heard of Italy. They, they like Catholicism there. They got yeah. this guy named the Pope. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, I'm being glib, but Catholicism is, is a very, very important part of that catholic of that italian identity Mm -hmm. and it fits in with the constructed nationalism of italy in a very important way right i I mean i have seen the godfather yeah (laughs) fair fair enough yeah it's 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 culturally so important to italians and there's some resistance to the idea of because i mean fascism has this this tension right between tradition and novelty right that's always something that it struggles with it wants to hold up this traditional idea of the nation of the people of the folk 
and support it and defend it and fight against uh, decay. But at the same time, it's also got this like drive towards modernity and towards uh, innovation and leaving behind the corruption of the past and all of this. Right. And those are, those are fundamentally, yeah, dead way. And those are fundamentally constantly in tension, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's too much tension when it comes to the the Catholic church, because not only is uh, Mussolini like definitely not a practicing Catholic, but he's like been attacking Catholic values. And Italy as a state since 1870 has essentially had the Pope living as a refugee within its borders. Remember that all comes from like the, the, the wars of unification in, in Italy in the 1870s. Vatican city is not recognized at this point in time. Right. The Pope, the Pope is living as a political prisoner, essentially inside Rome up until this point. And so what Mussolini decides to do both to help incorporate Catholicism into the idea of fascism and to rehabilitate his own image is he opens negotiations with the Pope. And in 1929, the Lateran treaties are signed, which guarantees the sovereignty of Vatican city. So it's, uh, it's the fascist regime that, that legitimizes uh, Vatican city as its own sovereign state within Rome. It also, outlays like which churches outside or which properties outside of Vatican city are technically Vatican property are tax exempt are, you know, belong to the church, et cetera, et cetera. Um, hmm. gets into lots of details, but what this helps to do is to show Mussolini as like embracing Italian nationalism in a very concrete way. It also yeah. kind of helps Italy's reputation, I suppose, internationally with Catholics because I was gonna say he's making peace with the Pope, which is pretty important. That guy's all about peace, right? Well, and that's the thing. That's the way that the fascism is generally being portrayed at this point in time, right? Is as the most peaceful movement. And of course it's all a lie. We talked last time about how this drive towards war is essentially inevitable with fascism, right? And this is where that momentum that I talked about earlier comes in, too. You have to keep moving forward. You have to keep making changes. When Mussolini stagnates, when he stops making changes, people get restless and he has to find a new thing to take care of, right? Mm-hmm. When uh, things are stagnating with corporatization, he looks to expanding into Libya. When things at home aren't really moving because everything's happening in Libya, he looks to the latter treaties to appease the people, Right. It keeps it keeps going forward. He has to keep gaining things because if he doesn't change anything, then the question that inevitably arises is why do we have a fascist leader? What is the utility of a fascist leader if they don't continue to push things forward, if they don't continue to need and take more? Right. You might as well just have a generic liberal republic at that point. The Great Depression also hits Italy in 1929. Mm hmm. It intensifies the level of economic intervention uh, by the state. The banks were already kind of in crisis before uh, the Great Depression. This allows uh, the Italian government, the fascist government, to nationalize all banks, all banks in Italy. By 1937, as much as three quarters of all industry in Italy is, on paper at least, nationalized. Only So state-owned? State-owned. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So only 25% of industry is actually privately owned at this point. There's a lot of confusion with 
fascism is in terms of like its economic uh, position, sort of on the left right spectrum. And that's essentially because their economics don't fit into the left right spectrum. They are pro business, but only on a macro level, like on a state level. They are pro collectivization, but only on a nationalist level. It's it's kind of a weird combination, right? Okay. They only care about you as a private business owner if you are adding value to the state. Yeah. And if you're unable to do so, then they do not care about you one bit. Yeah. What you see a lot in business, both in Germany and in Italy, but much more so in Italy, is sort of a voluntary compliance with business in that Yes, you are allowed to do whatever you want with your business, legally speaking, but government contracts tend to go to the most loyal businesses. And so it makes business sense to align your businesses with state interests in the interest of getting those contracts and staying in business. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kind of kind of think about every single business as like Boeing or Lockheed Martin in the 1960s trying to get like space contracts. <laughs> yep but like that also applies to like farms you know yeah or like yeah. or like anything yeah uh, you know uh artists like every segment um it's it's a really weird dynamic we we i think we talked about political spectrum stuff last time a little bit and then didn't continue on with it at all i should probably address that at some point or somebody's gonna be upset with me eh? um I, I read a really interesting article by a scholar of right-wing authoritarianism about the placement of different political systems on sort of political compasses or spectrums and things like that. And basically what they said was that it, some of the similar stuff that we said, which was that uh, the, the left-right spectrum really only makes sense within like a very narrow window of liberalism, you know, very mm -hmm. French French revolution type stuff, right? And that you can expand it by looking at, uh, by adding an axis of looking at like social dynamics, left and right, and economic yes. dynamics, uh, left yeah. and right, authoritarian versus collective. So you can, you can take something like a liberal democracy and say like, okay, well, on an economic scale, it's very individual. And on a right scale, it, it leans very individual as well, right? Like it's, it's all about individual freedoms as much as possible. Yeah. You might look at a modern social democracy and say, well, you know, socially it tends to lean left kind of collective and uh, rights tend to be uh, higher. But when you get into placing fascism on this on this scale, the trouble is that it ends up looking a lot like communist, like very like Soviet communists. So they're both very like authoritarian and they both yeah. tend to talk a lot about collectivism. But the missing, uh, the missing dynamic is national versus inter international. And what they're saying is that, like, when you look at left-wing politics, when you look at communist politics, it tends to be very international in nature, and it tends to be very class-based. Yeah. Fascism re replaces all of that with very nation-based in place of class. So yeah, it replaces yeah. it replaces class solidarity solidarity with national solidarity, and economics. Uh, are collective, but in the service of the nation, not in the service of class. Yeah. And when it comes to 
level of personal freedom, like, yeah, they both tend to be relatively low. But again, it's in service of nation, not in service of class. So you essentially need three... That's possibly the best way I've ever heard it explained. (laughs) You essentially need three... One of the best, yeah. You essentially need three axes to properly map where fascism lands on on, on a plot with communism or with uh, liberalism or any number of other political systems. And this is mm-hmm. going to cause a lot of confusion for people studying fascism during the war and immediately after the war, where you get the uh, uh, the horseshoe theory of, of politics, which yeah. essentially maps uh, all politics onto a single spectrum, which, as we just said, doesn't really work that well. And basically says that the further left you go and the further right you go, it's like a horseshoe. It starts coming back together again. So the more totalitarian you are, the more it just all looks the same, whether you're on the left or on the right. And that's not true at all. That's not a good model of how this stuff works, right? Because while there are definitely similarities between, you know, Stalinist uh, USSR and uh, fascist Germany, the goals that they have there are very different and the ways that they go about them are very different. Um, the fact that they are both uh, authoritarian and the fact that both committed uh, massive atrocities, they, they don't have a whole lot to do with their ideological foundations or their ultimate goals. Yeah. So anyway, that was a that was a departure. But that's that's the that's my that's my left versus right talk on on fascism um, <laughs> okay. yeah, is what it is. So in 1935. Keep in mind, this is after they start adjusting for the Great Depression, and it's after uh, Hitler takes control in Germany. That need for momentum takes hold once again in uh, in Italy. Like Mussolini, like needs more. There's something he needs to offer the people, and they look to Ethiopia. Italy had been defeated by Ethiopia in 1896 to their great embarrassment at the time. And they really didn't have any major territory in like the, well, they, they, they wanted more territory in the Horn of Africa, but it never really gone back to Ethiopia. Mussolini saw this as an opportunity to start a war that would be more for national spirit than it would necessarily be for any real political purpose. And this is sort of like the true face of fascism in a certain way. He's not going to war because of the resources in Ethiopia, although that doesn't hurt. He's not going because Ethiopia has done anything wrong to Italy. They haven't. He's mainly going to war because he expects it to be popular with the Italian people and to become more popular as a leader for it. Okay, makes sense. He was also concerned at the time about German designs on Austria. If you stretch back to the Italian unification episodes, you'll remember that Austria and Italy have a pretty long history of intertwined politics, mainly with Italy being under the thumb of Austria. Because of this, in the early 1930s, Italy actually had designs on making Austria a client state, basically in retribution. But the Germans also wanted Austria. Austria was seen as sort of left out of the European of the uh, of the German uh, Union. They wanted to bring all German people under their umbrella. There was this famous speech that uh, Hitler gives about ten million Germans living outside our borders, referring to the Czech Republic and or sorry Czechoslovakia at the time, and to Austria, uh, indicating okay. that he wanted to bring them back within the borders, one way or another. Um, <laughs> Basically, Italy's going like, we need to start expanding. We need to start up our war engine. We can't compete with Germany. This is a problem. Hitler always really liked Mussolini. 
Mussolini did not like Hitler at all, uh, at least when their relationship first started out. Um, hmm. They first met in like 1933 or 1934, and Mussolini just thought he was kind of a weirdo and wouldn't stop talking about Jewish conspiracies and stuff like that. And he didn't much <laughs> like him. He didn't see him as like a good, fair continuation of fascism. However, he saw him as useful. That seems to be a theme. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> people tend to think that he might be useful and it comes around and bites them, right? Yeah. Um, Italy's foreign policy at this point in time is sort of like, well, we want to create a new balance of powers in Europe, right? Mm -hmm. And what they ideally would like to see was a balance between Italy, France, Britain, and Germany, all in about equal proportions, so this this move into Ethiopia is part of that like expansion, right, for the Spazio Vitale, as well as for the popularity at home. They were Italy was worried though about basically the reaction of other major uh, European powers. So they entered secret negotiations with France, who had uh, border interests near Ethiopia, basically to allow them to invade Ethiopia in exchange for sort of like a suggestion of a defensive pact against Germany. France was getting very worried about Germany's military expansion at this point in time. They had uh, retreated from the Rhineland in 1930 and started building the Maginot Line, uh, kind of in tacit acknowledgement of the fact that Germany was more or less certain to attack at some point in time. They just didn't know when. And they were looking for allies. I mean, they had been trying to build an alliance essentially a ring of alliances all the way around Germany. So they were approaching Poland for uh, uh, alliances. They were approaching the USSR for alliances against Germany. Yeah. So why not Italy as well? Yeah. So they agree to allow, uh, like they have say in the matter, they agree to allow uh, Italy to invade Ethiopia um, in exchange for this, like maybe we'll have a defensive pact thing. But Germany didn't want the war to go well for Italy. His reasoning being that he was worried that Italy was getting too close with France and he didn't like the designs that Italy had on Austria. So, so what he decided to do was sell weapons to the Ethiopians, German weapons to the Ethiopians to use against the Italians secretly. The thinking being that if it was a quick war and Ethiopia was defeated immediately, that really nobody in Europe was going to say a whole lot. But if the Ethiopians were better armed and able to hold off a little bit longer against the Italians, then the League of Nations, which had been formed in the aftermath of World War I, would be forced to condemn Italy's actions in Ethiopia. And if they were forced to condemn Ethio uh, the action in Ethiopia, then it would force any of the major members of the League of Nations to distance themselves from Italy in response. Okay. This is a very little, a very complicated little thing. I'm yeah. only going into the details of this because I want to point out how complicated the relationship between Italy and Germany is. Because what ends up happening at the end of all of this is that Italy gets Ethiopia, which makes Italy happy. And Germany is fine with that. But the, pro, the, the conflict lasts for an entire two years, which forces the League of Nations to put sanctions against Italy, which prevents France from making an alliance with Italy defensively against Germany, which is going to leave Italy free of allegiances with France 
and available uh, to ally with Germany as really its only major uh, supporter, because Britain would have also condemned them in all of this. I'm guessing Mussolini's weirdly happy about this. He's he's yeah, I mean, he's he's fine with getting Ethiopia, but like he's frustrated with how slowly it went. The 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 constant theme with war and Mussolini is it never goes as well as he hopes. Yeah. Um, but you know, oh, uh, by the way, I, you asked me a question in the last episode that I did such a bad job of answering that I actually cut it out of the episode. I've never actually done that before. And you <laughs> asked me, and it was a, f- a completely fair question. And I just did not have uh, a good enough answer for you, uh, was why would Mussolini have supported fascists in France if fascism is a nationalist ideology? Yeah. <laughs> and the answer is because it was during these negotiations. It was in 1934. This is the exact time time that Mussolini is trying to make an ally out of France. However, he would really prefer to have a a fascist France to be allies with. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. That makes a lot more sense. I agree. Yeah, the answer I gave you, it was not good. I cut the entire thing. I don't know. I doubt you listened back because you actually recorded the thing with me. No, it's gone. People wouldn't have known about it if I hadn't mentioned it now. <laughs> I just like to come clean about it. It's been bothering me. I'm usually better than that. But yeah, that's that's the reason is because he was in the middle of secret overtures with France, but would really rather a French government that was uh, ideologically aligned with him. Yeah. So no secret alliance with France never comes. At this point, I'm going to start because we've kind of caught back up to 1934, 1935, which is where we left things with uh, with Hitler before. I'm just going to start talking about the fascist movement in tandem because this is really where they start coming more into alignment. They're going to continue kind of sniping at each other behind the scenes, but world fascism is sort of a thing now. There are movements in Hungary. There are movements in Portugal. There are movements in Austria. Like it's, it's, it's sort of a thing, but by and large, Italy and uh, Italy and uh, Germany are the ones that are leading the way in terms of fascism. In 1936, uh, Germany remilitarizes the Rhineland. Rhineland is that strip of industrial capacity uh, land that's, uh, well, right next to the Rhine River on the borders to to France. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1919, in the wake of the Treaty of Versailles, France had occupied the Rhineland, not as like a, not as an attempt to annex it, but rather it was being held as collateral in case Germany didn't make its payments uh, for reparations under the treaty. This was a massive sore spot for the German people, I'm sure you can imagine. It was one of the more punitive measures under the Treaty of Versailles. Remember, France was still mad about the uh, Franco-Prussian War uh, in the 1860s and used the Treaty of Versailles as an opportunity to really hammer Germany in the wake of World War I. Uh, and it wasn't lost on the German people that this was happening. Not having full access to that uh, industrial land was part of Germany's uh, economic issues, right? And so gaining full control of the Rhineland was a major part of the Nazi platform to the people. As I mentioned, in 1930, the the French had withdrawn their troops from, from the Rhineland. And essentially, it was in this weird spot where, like, Germany wasn't allowed to have military troops in the Rhineland, Mm -hmm. but now there was no one really stopping them except for the treaties and treaties are really only as good as people backing them up. And so Hitler decided that it was, uh, worth the risk of provoking 
uh, sanctions or even war to take control back of the Rhineland. This is a move that is sometimes seen as uh, reckless. Uh, sometimes it's seen as calculated by playing to his nationalist base. Uh, sometimes it's seen as calculated as reacting to a relatively passive uh, France and Britain uh, in the League of Nations after, you know, for example, Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also seen suggestions that the German economy was kind of turning down in 1936 and Hitler needed something to distract everybody. I bring all of this stuff up mostly to point out that like their campaigning in the first part, often the reasons that the Nazis have for doing things and the reasons that they give people for doing things are completely contradictory. But what ends up happening is they are more or less aligned in ways that allow as many people as possible to get on board with them. So you look at taking back the Rhineland as being seizing German industrial capacity, great, you're probably a middle to upper class businessman who cares about that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you see this as biting your thumb at the French who have uh, uh, humiliated you for decades over something that wasn't really even your fault? It was the Austrian Empire's fault. Then maybe you're a strongly nationalist former soldier. You know, like there, there are different ways of looking at this action from different segments of society where lots of people are going, you know what? Good for him. You know, finally, we have a leader who has the guts to do what it takes. Once again, whatever gets the popularity. Yeah. The craziest thing about all of this is that Britain and France decide not to enforce the treaties. Guys, they're afraid of conflict. They're, they're, they're yeah. afraid of starting another great war. Which is a valid fear. Understandable, yeah. You know, there's also the issue that the the French uh, military is significantly out of date at this point. There's the issue that the, the entire British uh, military has been based on the uh, assumption that there isn't going to be another, year, uh, another war for at least 10 years. Um, like, they've made budgetary decisions based on that assumption, and they're just not ready for it uh, in 1936. But, you know, there's there's a significant aversion to conflict after the First World War. So, yeah, they, you know, try and put in place sanctions and things like that. And Germany goes, that's fine. We've been migrating our economy towards as uh, as autonomous as possible for the last decade. Um, You know, like it's 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 hard to find fault with them other than in 2020 hindsight. Like, Yeah. yeah, absolutely. If they had cracked down on it, there's a good chance that there was enough power between various uh, uh, rivals or various uh, enemies of Germany to put them in check at this point in time. The The German army was an absolute mess at this point. Um, yeah. Maybe they could have done it. But at the same time, the French army was a mess too, and the British army was a mess too. So, you know, we're kind of... It, it's that it's that issue of counterfactual history, right? Where if you, if you change the parameters on one thing, like what other things are you allowed to change the parameters on, right? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that is the moment where the international community could have stopped Hitler. But at the same time, 1933 is where the German community could have stopped Hitler. Um, you yeah. know, like we, we can we can point fingers all we want. This is what happened. So the fact that he wasn't contravened it at, at, like at all 
really emboldened Hitler. He actually, he, he absolutely expected at least some military resistance to this action. It didn't come. And the fact that it didn't come uh, really accelerated his timeline for war, which he was absolutely already planning at this point in time. And he was already pretty fast on timelines. Mm-hmm. In 1936, the Spanish Civil War breaks out. This is a topic I expected to talk about a ton in fascism until. Yeah, I I was wondering when uh, Franco was going to show up. Well, the more reading I did about the Spanish Civil War, the more I came to two conclusions. Number one, number one, it is too big and complicated and interesting to make a footnote in something else uh, and probably deserves its own topic. Uh, And number two, Franco is not a fascist. Not everybody agrees with me on that. Um, okay, but I, I, the the more I read about it, the more I am convinced that Franco was not actually fascist. Franco subsumed the fascist movement in Spain under his own flag, but he defanged the fascist movement in in Spain. He kind of twisted it to his will the way everybody else was talking about doing that. You know, the 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 leader of the the fascist party in Spain was actually executed. Uh, right at the beginning of the Civil War, uh, Jose Antonio Primo de Rivera. And with his execution, let's back up a little bit. The Spanish Civil War was essentially, when it comes down to it, uh, it was a collapse of a republic. And what was being offered as a response was a military dictatorship under Franco and a, well, various communist causes, essentially. Franco wasn't an outside politician the way that Mussolini was or like Hitler was, right? This isn't like an outsider's movement, which fascism usually is. It is an establishment general coming in and taking over the government, which is not fascism. There's there's a bunch of other reasons I have for it. For example, you know, like the, the, the coup is a is a big part of it. He he wasn't elected in the way that uh the Hitler or Mussolini were. Um he this was a straight military coup. He had the backing of the traditional Spanish military. He didn't have a paramilitary force. He was nationalist, but no more than any other dictatorship at this point in time. He wasn't expansionist at all. Once Spain was taken, he became neutral. Uh, yeah. d- didn't fight in World War II at all. And yeah, he, he kind of took on some of the themes or flavors of fascism, but that's because it was extremely fashionable at the time. Um, it was, it was really, really popular and he was, uh, creating a coalition of right wing forces to lead the country. And that included a sizable fascist party. And while he made the fascist party, like the only legal party, he also completely removed all of their leadership and all of their revolutionary tendencies. So yeah, I, I, I don't believe that Spain was, uh, actually fascist despite using the language occasionally. And the direction that Spain took after the Second World War uh, just continues to demonstrate that the only thing that Franco really cared about was Franco, not about any sort of fascist ideals or fascist systems. So that is very interesting. Yeah. And and it's well worth discussing, I think, uh, at some time that isn't next month because I'm done talking about fascism and (laughs) and right wing authoritarianism for for a little bit. (laughs) Um, But that's okay. Yeah, so so the Civil War breaks out, and both Italy and Germany intervene against the socialists. This is uh, really reminiscent of sort of Truman Doctrine, can't let socialism spread anywhere kind of mm-hmm. thing. That's the justification that's being given. But 
what's actually happening is that both Italy and Germany are attempting to sharpen their militaries in actual combat experience and doing so in a way that is legal, question mark, because they're being invited by Franco. Italy wanted a Francoist victory. He wanted Franco in power. Italy committed over 50,000 men to this combat. Okay. Hitler didn't like Franco, really didn't like him. However, and this will sound familiar, he wanted mainly to prolong the conflict so he could maintain tension in the Mediterranean without antagonizing Britain and France. So the longer that war goes on, the harder it is for Britain or France to set up any sort of supremacy within the Mediterranean um, because of the constant conflict. And also, it also helps Italy to expand their navy, which is frankly the the best thing about their military in uh, the years leading up to World War II. Hmm. Yeah. In March of 1938, you get uh, what's known as Anschluss, which is the uh, German annexation of Austria. Austria actually had a fascist government before this. The movement to bring Austria in is, again, multifaceted. On one hand, it's like, let's get all German people under the same uh, banner. Um, Aryan superiority, etc., etc., chosen people. On the other hand, like, Austria had a lot of iron and access to oil (laughs) and other, like, strategic materials that are really important for building military. Yeah. So, again, you talk to Hitler, uh, and it's about, um, you know, repatriating the land that he was born in and uh, uniting the Germanic diaspora and all of this stuff that's very much about, like, setting up Germany as a persecuted nation, right? It's redoing what should have been done under German unification. If you talk to somebody like uh, Goering, it is, let's get that iron that we really, really need there's also talk about Lebensraum, right? Like expanding the amount of land that German people have to live on. All of this stuff goes into it. Austria did not want to be, or rather the Austrian leadership did not want to be annexed by Germany. Despite being fascist, they wanted to be Austrian fascists. The chancellor at the time, uh, Kurt, uh, I'm going to get this wrong. It's like Schuschnigg, I think. <laughs> My German isn't great. Um, he went so far as to dismantle the single party state that had been set up under the fascists, relegitimize the socialist parties, and uh, raise the voting age in order to attempt to declare independence from Germany by referendum. So what he's doing there is Whoa. letting socialists vote, raising yeah. the age because the Nazis are so popular with young people, and hoping that by having a referendum that shows that Austria is not willing to join Germany, that will give the international community enough to stand on that they can come in and defend uh, Austria from uh, fascist invasion. This backfires. I'm sure, I'm sure you didn't see this one coming. <laughs> Again, this one I want to dig into because I, w- I want to... Hmm. We talked about this another time too, but I, I, I'm always concerned about fascism being presented as this like, well, I don't know, everyone got weird and evil all at the same time for a while and then it went away. Like as though like it's not just a thing that happened in politics that real people got legitimately swept up with. Um, yeah. Sometimes through passion, sometimes through lies, sometimes through 
uh, malice, you know, like it's, it's, it's a very, very complicated thing. Yeah. I think a lot of times to me, at least Austria and the annexation of Austria was presented as sort of the, the greater German state, right? Like this idea of, of unification of Germany. What really happens is that this Austrian referendum is, is proposed. And before it even begins, there are uh, accusations from German Nazis of attempted election fraud by the Austrian uh, fascists, that they are going to rig this election, that no matter how it comes out, it doesn't mean anything because they will have cheated. Hmm. And they also claim that there are reports of riots in Austria that are being suppressed by the government. Okay. That, uh, you know, the Austrian state doesn't want you to know about. But in fact, the Austrian people actually do want to join Germany, no matter what any referendum says. And they are being attacked for it by the Austrian state and magnanimously decide to send troops to restore order in Austria at the request of the Austrian people. Gotcha. You see how that works? Yep. This is also a test of their new like military apparatus. The invasion is incredibly sloppy. But there is a kernel of truth in what they said, which is that there are a lot of Austrian Nazis who welcome uh, the arrival of the Wehrmacht. It's, yeah. um, you know, it, it's it's not everyone who wants to stay independent. Hitler looks very strong at this point in time. And there are a lot of Austrians who would rather be on his side than against him. So when the army arrives... Originally, Hitler was planning on keeping Austria sort of like a client state, like a puppet regime. Okay. The amount of support that he gains in this uh, in this invasion actually changes his mind enough to annex Austria completely into Germany. Oh, okay. In October of 1938, a couple of months later, uh, remember I mentioned earlier the speech about 10 million Germans beyond uh, yeah. their borders. Three million plus Germans uh, were within the borders of the newly created Czechoslovakia in an area known as Sudetenland. Yes, I've heard of it. This is sort of uh, the, uh, I mean, it's kind of crescent shaped, but it's sort of the westernmost part of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. And basically Hitler goes, well, we're going to take Sudetenland. People in Sudetenland want to join Germany. Like it's it's very much like similar uh, rhetoric like we're just we're just giving them what they want like who, who are we to stand in the way of the destiny of german people um <laughs> that kind of thing right yeah yeah britain and france go like oh okay like he's actually gonna in invade czechoslovakia maybe we need to do something about this and there's a conference uh arranged between uh, facilitated by italy actually um between germany france and britain about the status of Sudetenland. This uh, results in what's known as the Munich Agreement, which uh, basically says that Hitler can have the Sudetenland. This is the whole like Neville Chamberlain peace in our time thing. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the the whole like appeasement thing. There's this hope that uh, you know Hitler says something about like this is the last claim that they have in Europe, basically, and. Britain and France are basically hoping that by giving them Sudetenland or by not not intervening when they take Sudetenland, I suppose, uh, that the Nazis will actually be satisfied because they no longer have these questionable, but I suppose justifiable claims on German people, uh, German speaking people outside the borders of Germany. Yeah. And then they'll level out. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. But I'm, I mean, again, these countries are also still trying to build their military apparatus up, right? 
there's a presumption of peace for a very long time. They're trying to gain time, basically. Neville Chamberlain can get a bit of a bad rap. I mean, he comes back and immediately starts preparing for a war. Okay, fair enough. But, you know, it wasn't a great look. It's more just a, it, it looks bad taken out of context sort of thing. Hitler claims the Sudetenland uh, in accordance with the Munich Agreement and immediately moves troops in to enforce this agreement because, of course, the agreement wasn't actually made with Czechoslovakia. And then he continues to occupy the entire Czech half of the of the country as additional Lebensraum. <laughs> he just Oops. takes it. He just takes it. He just pushes past. He's expecting, again, ramifications on this one that never really come. Other bits of Czechoslovakia were also annexed by Hungary and by Poland. And what's left is a Slovak Republic that uh, is set up by the German state as a, a puppet regime that really doesn't have any autonomy. So uh, Czechoslovakia is basically wiped off the map and they don't really have to fire a shot. Oh. On the 7th of November, 1938, a 17-year-old uh, Jewish teenager who is the son of Jews who are deported to Poland from Germany, walks into a German embassy in Paris, asks for an appointment with a diplomat, is brought in to see somebody, and uh, shoots him five times in the chest. This assassination of a Nazi diplomat by a Jewish teenager mm -hmm. uh, has, has terrible, terrible consequences in Germany. This is Kristallnacht, uh, Night of Broken Glass, or Crystal Night. Um, yeah. The name comes from the windows that are broken in Jewish businesses. Over 7,000 businesses are smashed or burned in, in Germany. Several hundred uh, often historic uh, synagogues are burnt and destroyed. We talked earlier about um, there being a, an official boycott on all Jewish businesses. Were they surviving mostly because of the business of other Jewish people or... Yeah, I mean, that's definitely part of it. Part of it is that, like, you're not actually prohibited from shopping at a Jewish business, and people still continue to. You don't see the level of nationalization of industry in Germany that you do in uh, in Italy. Hitler was much more concerned with the social Darwinist aspects of fascism, the violence, the uh, authoritarianism, a lot less with the economic theory. Okay, um, that would be that would be more like what you were talking about, but the two state thing. Yeah, and so he would just let that run. Yeah, yeah, okay. and, and so there. I, I mean, it was not easy for Jewish business people. No, um, not at all. It, it, it was very very hard, but those businesses could continue to exist, and you know you're also you know you're not always necessarily talking about like berlin or something you're talking sometimes about very small towns where there are only a couple of businesses and maybe you have the choice between shopping locally or traveling a at a at a jewish business or traveling a very long way away to find one that isn't so like okay. there there are various reasons that people are still shopping at jewish businesses also like not everybody's that anti-semitic right yeah there's there's you know let's be real most people have like minimum low levels of it but like not so much that they're not willing to stop into a shop and buy something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, at least 90 people are killed directly. That doesn't count the like hundreds of suicides that come in the wake of Kristallnacht. People losing their businesses, their synagogues, seeing the writing on the wall, as it were. 
more restrictive laws are passed in uh, in response to this. Uh, over 30,000 Jews are arrested. When, when they're arrested, they're sent to cities with major rail depots. They haven't decided what to do with them yet. There's actually a, a thought that the plan might be to ship all Jewish people to Madagascar um, early at this early, or in this in this phase of planning. Um, but uh, eventually they'll all be sent to concentration camps. Yeah. 115,000 Jewish people attempt to emigrate from uh, from Germany uh, in direct response to this. There are maybe half a million Jewish people in Germany before all this starts. So it's a significant percentage. Mm-hmm. When Germany is able to take over Czechoslovakia again without firing a shot, basically, the next item on their list is there's a there's an enclave known as East Prussia. It's German territory technically, but it's not connected to the rest of Germany. You have to go through Poland to get to it. They have their... That was separated because of the divisions of World War One, right? Yeah, the creation of the, the state of Poland or the recreation, I suppose. Yeah. Um, that's right. And so Germany wanted all of Poland. Uh, they saw that land as being good land that was being farmed by bad people. Um, yeah. In the in the Nazi worldview of, of racial hierarchy, uh, Slavs were, were quite low on that list. So there was this idea that, you know, yeah, all of all of Poland is going to be a good idea. The uh, official pretext for this invasion of Poland is going to be a creation of a what they call the Polish corridor to um, East Prussia. Yeah. Uh, basically on claims of being able to access their own territory. And Germany will invade uh, Poland on the 1st of September 1939. The invasion goes extremely quickly. Poland falls very quickly. The invasion begins with plans in hand to concentrate Jews in cities with good rail. There are more than three and a half million Jewish people in Poland. The plan is to, one way or another, displace all of them to make room for German living space. In those first couple of weeks of the invasion, over 65,000 Polish uh, leaders of various types, not just political, but like cultural leaders as well, are executed in a deliberate attempt to destroy Polish culture with the hopes that by destroying their culture, incorporating the land will be easier. And that is finally, finally, the bridge too far uh, for the rest of Europe. Britain and France declare uh, war shortly thereafter, uh, shortly after the the invasion of, uh, of Poland, and that is the beginning of World War II. That's been some pretty heavy stuff, uh, so why don't we take a quick break, rally a little bit, and we'll very quickly move through a couple key points of the war afterwards and talk about what comes next. Okay. Back on HI101, here with Ethan Blesky. Hi. And uh, World War II has begun. I I don't want to get too bogged down with World War II. I've had this conversation with you a couple of times regarding this topic as a whole. Um, yeah. We're, we're not here to talk about World War II. We're here to talk about fascism. World War II just yeah. happens to be an inevitable part of it. Um, so I, I want to keep a pretty focused scope as we as we go through this point this part. Yeah. Mainly what I want to focus on is some of the decisions that are made by the Axis powers 
and how it relates to fascism as a as a worldview as an ideology things like that all with this uh, uh focus again on momentum right like as long as these powers keep offering their their uh uh citizens something they tend to retain authority but stagnation is almost as bad as actual defeat and okay. uh they're going to very much have that in mind as we as we go along all right poland has been invaded uh it's also invaded by the way from the east uh by the ussr a couple of weeks yeah. later uh germany and the ussr have a peace treaty it's known as the molotov ribbentrop pact it's mostly just fun to say you don't need to know it um this was a bit of a surprise to the allies because you know fascists don't usually make uh, alliances with communists but as far as both Stalin and Hitler saw it, they were making an alliance of convenience with each other, basically to give each of them enough time to prepare for the inevitable face-off between them. Yeah. There's basically no action from Britain and France uh, until at least May of 1940. They need to get ready. As we talked about recently, or previously, the uh, both of them had armies that weren't necessarily ready to fully mobilize for total war. And they're going to take these months to get prepared. In December of 1939, you're going to see the mandate for Jews to wear the Star of David at all times. These early years of the war and preceding the war saw, as we talked about, a lot of attempts to uh, emigrate from uh, Germany. It's uh, it's worth noting that a lot of times these efforts at emigration are not successful because various countries refuse to take Jewish immigrants. There's about 250,000 Jews who emigrate to uh, the United States in the war, in the years preceding the war. There are a lot of, uh, but but they eventually put a cap on how many people are allowed to uh, to emigrate. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of other con- countries who have extremely limited numbers uh, that are allowed to start a new life there. Um, there are many many cases of of Jewish settlers uh, being turned away. Canada included. There's a there's a famous uh, there was a ship called the St. Louis carrying 900 plus uh, uh, Jewish refugees that was turned away from uh, multiple countries: uh, Britain, uh, America, uh, Canada, all sorts. Uh, about a third of them ended up in concentration camps after they had to return to Germany. That's mostly just to say that anti-Semitism isn't special to. Germany. I know I've, I've stressed that a number of times in other places, but it's it's well worth uh, keeping in mind as we go through this. It is really hard to convince a whole bunch of people of of a threat that's completely devoid of any context. Yeah. But when you have a group that's so uh, th- that has their prejudice so ingrained uh, or prejudices against them so ingrained as the the Jewish people in Europe. Um, mm-hmm doesn't take a lot to convince them that they might actually be enemies when thousands of years of history have been telling everyone exactly that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really, it's really difficult stuff to, to grapple with, but while Britain and France are struggling to get ready uh, for the war in early 1940, Denmark and Norway are both uh, invaded, mainly to guarantee the regularity of shipments from neutral Sweden uh, of iron. Uh, it's it's just more material stuff. Yeah, it's not even like it was super necessary for you know ideological purposes or strategic purposes. Nope, just got to keep the war machine going. May 1940, uh, Netherlands, Belgium, 
invaded on the way to France, basically. It's a rehash of the path from uh, World War One. And uh, in June of 1940, France, after a few weeks of fighting, is is going to surrender. It's it's very quick. Because they circumvented the Maginot Line, right? Yeah, that's that's a that's a big part of it. I mean, the Maginot Line gets made fun of a lot. You know, without without getting too deep into it, it's it's really it's a lot of hindsight stuff, right? It's also a lot of like military history type nitty gritty stuff. The line yeah. wasn't that bad an idea. It just didn't work out for them. Those are those are kind of two different things. Um, the 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 criteria they used to make the decision to build the line was not. It wasn't all that flawed. It just you know again they weren't they weren't really prepared for uh blitzkrieg warfare that's kind of all that comes down to it. yeah anyways with france uh surrendering that quickly well, well let's let's back up we haven't talked about Mussolini in a while where's where's that guy at here's the thing italy wasn't ready for war either a lot of the moves in the last couple of years have put Mussolini in this weird spot of on one hand, understanding that Italy isn't ready for war. He kind of put Italy's readiness for war at, like, should be good to go by, like, 43. Ooh. Yeah. That's a little late. Well, I mean, but, but this, I mean, that's the plan as of, like, the 30s, like, the mid-30s, right? Yeah. He saw Hitler as, like, rushing things. That's fair, due to their history, yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that he's got kind of an inferiority complex when it comes to Germany because it's like, wow, look at them with their like good army and like making actual territory claims that are working out for them. Like, where's Italy's slice of the pie? And yeah, they make some like minor claims here and there, like you know, Yugoslavia, bits of it, and like the anyways, there's there's some small stuff that they're doing, but like they don't have the confidence or manpower to make big moves. And Mussolini is being held back by the king and various ministers who are like, no, we are not ready for war. But keep in mind momentum, right? He's, Do they still have a bunch of people in uh, in Spain, too? Uh, the Spanish Civil War is over. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it ends in, oh, I should know that, 38 or 39, I can't remember which. Um, I believe 38. So, no, they've they've got their, their troops back from there. Yeah, what, what Mussolini has is a populace that he's spent several decades preaching, you know, the beauty of violence to and the, the, the importance of warfare to and, you know, testing uh, the strength of the nation in, in battle. And then like a war actually breaks out and he's kind of like, ah, but we're not ready, though. And like, that's your strength. Like, that's your that's your basis of rule, right, is your ability to be ready for war. And yeah. he's spent all this time conditioning the populace to believe that. And he's not like he can't back it up. And so he's in a weird spot when when the war breaks out, which is he wants to join the war, but he knows he's probably going to lose it. So when France is invaded, Mussolini decides that he's going to jump in, but he's not going to jump in specifically on the German side. He talks about it as campaigning a parallel war which is really semantics but what it means is that he's not actually coordinating with berlin at all uh in an attempt to look like he doesn't actually need help from berlin which gotcha which is a bad idea (laughs) he joins the war uh again or he declares war against france 
like a couple of days before they surrender. Like he waits as long as he possibly can to make sure that he was technically at war with a surrendering France without actually <laughs> having to commit any troops. Oh no. <laughs> Keep in mind, like France, the other side of this too is France is a historical enemy of Italy as well. Remember all of those territory changes yeah. uh, in, in like the South of France kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's important for him to be in on this. Like if there's an, if there's an opportunity for him to fight a historical enemy, he needs to be there taking it for image sake. So this declaration of war against France is done more or less with the assumption that, um, France is going to fall quickly. They're going to make peace with Britain. War is going to be over. He's going to get some territory out of it. Probably expand Italy. Look real good. Uh, everybody can go home happy, right? As we know, that's not what happens with uh, World War II. Um, Britain keeps fighting. Hitler, by the way, also tried to negotiate peace with Britain at this point. Hitler saw his his viewpoint on Britain is really interesting. He didn't he didn't see them as like a natural enemy necessarily. He saw them as sort of a fellow Nordic race in a certain way. Yeah, he had a lot of admiration for the British Empire and saw them as, you know, sufficiently white to be a, a friend and you know all of that stuff that's kind of icky but look they had done a lot of injustices oh yeah absolutely so, yeah. <laughs> um so he was hoping that britain would just make peace with him and he could just have all of the continent and everything would be great until eventually he'd have to go to war with stalin but you know we'll cross that bridge when we get there uh unfortunately um britain was not interested in peace uh, like at all even though this is after like the defeat at dunkirk like it's it's a yeah. it's a low point in the war for for the allies britain is basically alone at this point but they didn't surrender instead they moved the fighting to uh the mediterranean uh they decided that they wanted to contain the italian fleet because they were worried about the the italian fleet uh supporting german trade they already had blockades mm-hmm. set up you know, in the Atlantic, right? Cutting them off from any trade overseas. If they could also cut off the Mediterranean, then they'd be completely cut off. Italy, still kind of like spoiling to like get in on this action a little bit, decides that they are going to attack Egypt, which is British territory, right? Yeah. They're also going to attack in Greece, which they see as like part of the expanded Italian sphere of influence kind of thing. They see a lot of like that former big Ottoman part of Empire. the Mediterranean. Yeah. 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 They see that former Ottoman empire as like, you know, uh, free for the taking, but yeah. here's the thing. Things go really badly in Greece and Germany has to mostly because of uh, British Royal air force intervention, but it goes badly and Germany has to intervene on Italy's behalf to keep them from losing to Greece, which was seen as kind of embarrassing. And then Italy's campaign into British Egypt, which, again, they thought was going to be a cakewalk because it's completely cut off from Britain proper. Britain has other things to worry about. Yeah. Um, The British forces managed to drive the Italians back into Libya again. And again, they need German intervention. And Hitler is really, really tired of cleaning up all of Mussolini's mistakes. He would very much like to just coordinate with them, but Mussolini won't do that. He would very much like Mussolini to just stop starting random invasions that he can't follow through on (laughs) but Mussolini can't not invade things right like it's impossible for him not to invade and this isn't like a personality issue this is a leadership style issue this is a an ideological issue that he's committed himself to and is having trouble actually following through on at least in this era 
Hitler is extremely popular among Germans for being able to follow through on his word. He's saying he's going to unite all German peoples and he goes and he gets Austria and Sudetenland, right? Like that's, you know, those, those, those declarations that he's making, he's actually making them happen. Yeah. And for the significant chunk of the German population that is on board with these ideas, he's seen as keeping those promises. Mussolini does not have that level of support in Italy. He's kind of embarrassing himself as often as he possibly can. But at the same time, to not attack would be a contravention of fascist principles to a point that the fascists risk losing significant support. So he's kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. The British get pushed back into Egypt by the combined German and Italian forces, but mainly the German forces. This is uh, Rommel, by the way, right? The tank battles in North Africa. They push, yep. they push Britain back into Egypt by 1942, but the campaign turns around, Britain gets support, and the North African campaign goes in the Allied direction. By 1943, Italy is driven out of North Africa completely. So not only did they fail to take British territory, but the German army was unable to help them retain their own territories in Libya. Okay. And in 1943, uh, the Allies begin invading Sicily. Oh. That's right on his doorstep. See, they yep. realized fairly early on after the invasion of uh, France that war on the continent with Nazi Germany, at least at that point in time, is going to be very difficult. They do not have American support yet. They do not have a foothold in the continent anywhere. And they realize that very obviously Mussolini is the weak link here. You could try and get a foothold in France, which looks really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Or it looks like a stiff breeze might topple Mussolini. So maybe we should just go through Italy. And yeah. what's directly north of Italy's uh, borders. Well, not directly, but you get the idea. Um, Italy gets you onto the continent, is my point. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of the thinking of the, the Allied strategy through 1942-1943. In 1941, to back up slightly, after everything's buttoned down in the rest of the continent, Germany turns around and invades the Soviet Union. And I want to talk about that specifically because it is commonly held up as like, oh, that was a huge mistake. And it was, don't get me wrong. But the question that kind of comes up after that is kind of like, why would they ever do that? Like with Italy's war, Hitler can't necessarily stop. I mean, with all those victories under his, his uh, belt, he probably could have taken a pause right then, right? But he knew that he was going to end up going to war with Stalin eventually just over purely ideological differences. And yeah. with their peace treaty only like less than two years old, he was hoping to get the element of surprise on him versus giving him years and years to build up. He figured their military was in a strong enough place that they could take out the Soviet military and it should be a relatively easy victory. That was the thinking behind it. Now, why does he have to fight with the Soviet Union at all? Number one, they're communists. And... Hitler's entire worldview and political worldview are built on a specifically Bolshevik Jewish conspiracy to destroy the world. Yeah. And in the mind of the Nazis, the Jews and the Bolsheviks were the exact same. There is no distinction between them. They are synonyms. It had to happen at some point. 
the other thing is that Soviet Union had a ton of land and Hitler was ex- was obsessed with expanding Lebensraum. Poland wasn't seen as enough. He wanted Ukraine and he basically wanted all of the USSR as far as like the Caucasus Mountains. So like the, the good Western chunk of Russia, the, the most uh, arable land. Yeah. The other, the other portion of that uh, equation is his viewpoint of Slavic people, which I've, as we talked about earlier is uh, pretty low on the food chain. You said pr- pretty low. Well, they would, they would call them untermensch, like the, uh, 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 yeah, under gotcha. uh, under beings, lower people. They 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 were very much considered. I, I mean, well, let's let's put it this way: when the uh, concentration camps were set up in Poland, that would ultimately become death camps, and and the the decision to make them into death camps uh, was made about 1941. When those camps were set up, part of it is to deal with the three and a half million Jews that lived in Poland at the time. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the people who were sent to death camps were not Jewish. They were simply Polish citizens, and that was basically their only crime. The displacement or execution of Slavic people was seen as just as crucial to the the freeing of, of living space for German people as getting rid of Jewish people. There, there were no enemies quite as high as jewish people ever for the nazis but you know uh slavic there people, was one Sla- slavic people took the the or, or sat very comfortably in the second tier after gotcha. that uh along with um uh, you know the mentally ill uh roma homosexual people uh communists yeah. black germans it was you know they they started out with a, a small campaign of euthanizing the oldest germans at the beginning of the war uh which was uh, violently opposed by the Catholic Church and other religious organizations, um, and yeah. those same people would be moved over to work in the in the death camps. This this idea of of uh, I, I I don't know it's it's hard to encapsulate all of it. I think I think there are so many other people who have done it so much better than me. But the 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 confluence of these ideas of racial purity and uh, Jewish conspiracy and um, even like nazi obsession with cleanliness all converge in these horrifying ways in the death camps that you know i I don't want to linger on too long because as i said i I don't know that i can really do it justice but it's it's always important to 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 bring up so when it comes to going into the soviet union that number one adds another three million jews under nazi control if they actually control that entire territory and they would uh export uh, they would expel jewish people to uh, concentration camps as they entered the Soviet Union. So it was ridding that uh, territory of Jewish people, but it was also reclaiming it in their eyes from uh, Slavic people who they felt that they would just kind of shuffle to Siberia and they could try and make a go of it there. Yeah, these these policies of, of resettlement and, and extermination are, are roundly horrifying in every aspect. Yeah. By 1943... Half of all Italian troops fielded in the war had been destroyed, either killed or or injured. They were casualties. 50% losses. They had lost their African territories. Uh, They had no unsupported victories in the war. uh, No major unsupported victories in the war, I should say. And the Allies had invaded Sicily and were on their way to the Italian peninsula. Mussolini had a real bad war. It went poorly for him. 
he was extremely depressed. He was often heavily medicated to the point that it was very difficult to him to get him to uh, make any decisions on anything whatsoever. He lost the support of the general people because he had promised them victory and failed to deliver on it. Uh, he lost support of the fascist party for similar reasons. And Victor Emmanuel III no longer supported him. That's a bad time. It was bad enough that the fascist party voluntarily voted to ask the king to reinstate the constitutional duties of the prime minister, meaning that he was no longer a dictator. He could no longer act with impunity. He would be bound by the laws of the land. The fascist party asked for this. Ouch. Victor Emmanuel did so. He fired Mussolini as prime minister on July the 26th, 1943, yep. and immediately had him arrested. He was taken to a chalet of some sort to live a very, very uh, uh, lavish uh, imprisoned life. It's not as though Germany didn't see this coming to some extent. They had seen Mussolini as a security threat for about as long as the Allies had seen him as a security opportunity. <laughs> as soon as the Kingdom of Italy is restored in 1943, the new prime minister banned the fascist party with very little uh, resistance from the fascists and started uh, dismantling fascist uh, organizations. And at the same time, the German... Uh, army marches across the Alps and occupies basically the northern 40% or so of the Italian peninsula. So yeah, Germany invaded Italy in World War II. I'm not sure if that's or how widely known that's that that fact is. I didn't really know that, but yeah, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, they created the Italian Social Republic for the northern half. And once again, you see a strong division between the north and the south of Italy. A fact that would be cooler if it wasn't about Mussolini is that they then sent a commando squad to bust Mussolini out of his prison, kidnap him, take him to the uh, the new puppet state uh, of northern Italy, and installed him as dictator there. Now, he didn't actually have any powers, but yeah. that would make a cool movie. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. Again. Maybe change up the names a little bit. Um, it, it's just it's such a it's such an interesting and like daring mission. Between 1943 and 1945, there's a civil war between the two Italian states. In June of 1944, in the face of pending invasion by Allied forces, um, the German troops were forced to withdraw from the Italian social state, and that was basically the end of the war. Like not not actually, but. It was more or less over at that point. The Italian social state was facing not only the official military of the Kingdom of Italy, but also like local insurgents, like guerrilla efforts. It was a very unpopular reign. Did that northern state stay fascist under Mussolini for a little bit? I, I mean, as long as the as long as the war lasted, yes. Um, okay, but with the troops uh, with the German troops gone, uh, the remaining fascist troops who were like it was mainly made up of like loyalists that had traveled north with Mussolini once the new state was established there weren't enough of them to really hold the war yeah on the 27th of April 1945 Mussolini was captured by communist forces they found him trying to flee across the border into Switzerland uh the next day they summarily executed him without a trial and 
they took him to uh, Milan and paraded his body through the streets, along with his mistress and several other fascists. And that was the end of that state. That was the end of Mussolini. It was very undignified. Yeah. Uh, the war ended uh, May 2nd of 1945. In, in that like Civil War period, those couple of years, uh, the Italian kingdom had actually signed an armistice with the Allies and was technically uh, allied with Britain and France, or yeah. with with Britain and the other Allies, the French Resistance, not not Vichy France. We actually have a couple great uncles who fought in uh, Italy at that point in time, yeah, um, as part of that campaign. So, anyways, the reaction in Italy to all of this was essentially Victor Emmanuel abdicated the throne in favor of his son, who held an, uh, a referendum on the future of Italy and the country basically voted in this referendum to become a Republic. The uh, Royal family was actually barred from entering the country for, I think they were allowed back in, in 2002. So they were sent to exile despite the fact that the King had been instrumental in overthrowing Mussolini at the end. uh, Mm -hmm. His collaboration at the beginning was enough to make him persona non grata. And Italy uh, in general used that, experience with fascism as a you know the, the reaction to that was to become a, a liberal republic to put in place a constitution to become a, a modern uh you know european state as a as a consequence something that they had never quite managed to do uh before mussolini yeah two days after mussolini was executed uh hitler died by suicide in his bunker in berlin so mm-hmm. soviet forces were on their way in they uh the Nazis had pushed into the USSR as far as the Battle of Moscow, and that was as far as they ever got. They spent years and years and years slowly retreating in front of the massive machinery of the Soviet army. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, here here in the West, we hear a lot about like D-Day and stuff like that, the Battle of London. No, no, no. All the action in World War II happens on the Eastern Front. The loss of life, the scale of battles is, is enormous. The last years of war were marked by a loss of confidence in Hitler. Again, as soon as he start, uh, stops lo- uh, winning, people start questioning his leadership. There were multiple assassination attempts by other party leaders. Hitler himself became increasingly paranoid over all of this. Um, yeah. He refused to accept the idea of surrender. Thousands of Germans would be executed in the last year of the war as court-martial for refusing to fight. And we're not necessarily talking about always military here. Surrender was signed officially on May the 8th, 1945. A portion of the story that doesn't always get talked about a lot is that the reaction of the populace to these losses was, uh, it, it was, it was devastating for the national psyche. Keep in mind that the press had been so locked down and so full of propaganda that despite the fact that they had been losing for several years in the USSR, most German citizens weren't actually aware of that until the Soviets were basically at their doors. Yeah. There were thousands of suicides in the last couple of months of the war and slightly after. Some of these people were, you know, they had heard propaganda about how soviet soldiers had treated other germans as they advanced some of this was made up to make them look especially barbaric some of it was not because german soldiers had been so incredibly 
vicious towards the Soviet soldiers in their advance that mm-hmm. a lot of Soviet soldiers took it as an adv- as an opportunity to retaliate as they uh, advanced the other way. The the uh, the German army was significantly harder on Soviet soldiers uh, or Soviet prisoners than on uh, French or British prisoners uh, all the way through the war. Um, yeah, we're we're talking a significant percentage of them were just summarily executed, hundreds of thousands. Uh, so yeah, they they there there were atrocities being committed by Soviet soldiers. Absolutely, that's that's not a lie. But it was also kind of hyped up by. Uh, German propaganda to kind of mythical levels and a lot of people in Germany chose suicide over being subjected to that Uh, there were also a lot of people who kind of came to the realization that they had done some terrible terrible things over the last decade and that there might actually be a reckoning coming for it and chose suicide as a way out Uh, some just simply couldn't handle the idea that Germany might have lost this war yeah. Um, it's a really tragic and kind of difficult thing to deal with that people could be in that deep, but they were. It, again, it's it's something that I feel like probably deserves a lot more uh, examination than I'm able to give it today. But mm-hmm. it, it, it is an aspect that I, I don't know always gets talked about too much. I've heard it mentioned, but maybe not delved into very much mm-hmm. well you could essentially the, the thing that makes it remarkable is that it was essentially state-sponsored uh it was, oh. it was encouraged by the party uh that suicide was preferable over defeat you could get su- uh, cyanide capsules fairly easily from the government yeah did didn't know that part yeah no it's it's not this isn't a you know concurrent event sort of thing this is a policy that was in place that people took advantage of freely. I mean, freely is a uh, loaded word in this sentence, but my, my point being that it, it was, it was something that people for whatever reason chose. It, it's stuff like this that people point to when they talk about, you know, fascism or, or Nazism being a, a culture of death. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not really a, a, an exaggeration so much as it is like, there's an idealism here that is, predicated on victory or death those are the options violence is good either you come out a winner or you come out dead and those are the two options that you have to choose from and it is played out in in many aspects of this uh of this regime including the end Um, and it's modeled by you know important people in the in the regime hitler himself being the most uh, the most obvious one, but but yeah. many many leaders decided not to take responsibility and 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 uh, face uh, any sort of consequences for this. They they chose suicide instead. So you know where are we at the end of this? Uh, we have something like thirteen million people killed in the the death camps. Uh, Six million Jews. It's it's something like two thirds of the popula- uh, the Jewish population of of Europe. Um, you have the Nuremberg trials for Nazi leaders that uh, saw many of them executed. You have uh, the aggressive removal of Nazi officials from positions of power. You have Germany uh, split up between the four allied powers, uh, Britain, France, United States, and the Soviet Union. Uh, you also see those powers choosing to look the other way for certain former Nazis when the circumstances suited them uh sometimes 
you know, taking, uh, for example, Nazi rocket scientists for their own space programs, or yeah. uh, there were plenty of German bureaucrats who had been party members, but you know, hadn't, didn't really have enough uh, evidence to link them directly to anything heinous. And they were the only ones who knew how the the department worked. So they were left in place. And, you know, all of this is complicated by compulsory party uh, membership. It's complicated by the fact that basically from the time you're 10 years old, you're, you're, you're expected to be involved in the party. It's, it's really hard to root something like that out of a, out of a society. And it's going to take years before the allies, even begin to trust uh, native German government to govern itself because of this worry of resurgent Nazification. But that doesn't take place. Uh, Germany takes very direct responsibility for its role in all of this. Yeah, um, part of it is imposed. Part of it is a as, as a as a way to try and move past uh, what happened. But I mean, again, this is this is not a story about some sort of collective uh delusion by millions of people or or collective trickery this is a this is a thing that through incremental steps and through the exploitation of uh fear and prejudice and uh patriotism bias bias, all sorts of things through through the through the uh skillful manipulation of all of these things uh some very terrible people managed to convince millions and millions of people to support them uh in in really terrible endeavors and i think that ultimately is what makes fascism so insidious as a political force it's not that we need to be talking about this as a can you believe how evil this one thing is that happened once and assume that you know if if fascism was to ever rear its head again it's going to come wearing swastikas and goose stepping yeah what's insidious about it is that fascism as as we've talked about is tailor-made it is designed specifically to manipulate mass politics in a completely irrational way it's designed to play to our pride and it's designed to play to our fears and those are really effective tools it turns out really effective tools so where does that leave us you know the war makes fascism a much harder sell and for a long time people are going to be a lot more vigilant about it but at the same time there's a certain genie that's been let out of the bottle and can't be put back in right we talked very early on about some prerequisites for fascism, things like uh, the existence of uh, fractured left, uh, the existence yeah. of communism, the existence of a popular, uh, like a, a mass politics movement. And then we talked about some other very specific things that come up uh, that are also necessary, things like the uh, failure of conventional uh, government mechanisms, right? Yeah. But... You know, the flip side of that is that those things can happen anywhere, right? Like you can have a crisis anywhere that an argument could be made that the regular mechanisms of the state aren't sufficient to rescue us from it. Mm-hmm. We're, you know, everywhere is vulnerable to that to some extent. The idea that you can appeal to nationalist uh, sensibilities. I mean, nationalism is arguably the strongest driving political force of the 20th and 21st century so far. You know, it's it's not hard to play on people's patriotism. Yeah. Uh, 
the idea of setting up external enemies like attacking us from within and and activating that group defense kind of thinking that's kind of hardwired into our brains to some extent right that's that's always going to be there the attractiveness of blaming your problems on others is always going to be there because that's a lot easier than owning up to the fact that it might be our problems to solve ourselves yeah exactly feeling like a victim is something everyone can relate to you know all of those things about fascism are still in existence you know i i I think there's a there's a contingent of people that say like oh you know this is a thing that happened in the in the mid 20th century as a reaction to the warfare and et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, if you want to define it as strictly as, you know, stemming from the Great Depression, then yeah, it can't happen again. But when we kind of map the conditions of fascism, it turns out that, yeah, it can, it can, it can kind of happen anywhere that is a liberal democracy. It is, it is a, it is a potential disease of liberal democracy that needs to be uh, watched for. Because the end, and I mean, we only have a, a limited number of, of examples of this, but as far as we can tell, the end is always war yeah. uh, and worse. So that's a fun, cozy bit to end on, but I think that's my piece. This has been a long time coming. I'm, I'm on, on one hand, very glad to be done. <laughs> on yeah. the other hand, uh, very grateful for the opportunity to have gone through all of this. So thanks for being with me the last couple episodes. Um, Absolutely anything missing anything you want to ask about any comments oh no it's it's just it's a lot it's just terrifying how much of a social disease it is and how how tailor-made it is to prey on everything that that we have you know yeah well i i think i think the only using that fear using that tribalism that that we can't really help Mm mm-hmm and just yeah i mean that's not that's not to say that there's nothing that can be done about it right like that's that's the that's no, no, the no, good thing that's, that's the one good thing that's come out of any of this is that learning to recognize these patterns is really the only defense against it yeah um, exactly it it takes concerted effort it takes identification and it takes um it takes vigilance yeah and if that drops out then yeah it can rear its head again yeah yeah exactly and I think I said at the beginning that I think with with fascism, there's there's two main traps that people fall into. They they call everything fascism, or they don't think anything could be fascism. And I uh, one of the one of the authors that I depended on most heavily for my my research on this, his name's Robert Paxton. If anyone's done any any studying on this, they'll know the name. It's not it's not as though this is like some rare gem I pulled out. He's he's one of the leading authorities on this stuff. But one of the things that I, I found really interesting uh, from him was. His, his approach to the question of like, could fascism happen somewhere else was essentially that like, well, fascism happens in, I, I believe he gives five stages for it, you know, from, from uh, low level kind of the existence of some fascist uh, uh, sentiments within society to like full-blown implementation of fascist rule. And his answer to it is like, well, it's really, really hard to get to level five, but like also level one exists in basically every Western society. Because yeah. if you if you just identify some of those you know authoritarian tendencies and nationalist tendencies and racist tendencies, those have not gone anywhere. What needs to be done is to basically keep it at that level one. I mean, ideally there'd be none, but you know it's it's about degrees. 
that's what matters yeah. here. And yeah. so um, I, I found that I found that useful to some extent. But yeah, it, it is it is sobering to think about. Um, so what I was getting at earlier was, uh, you know, either the too much or not enough thing, right? Yeah, being being aware of the fact that it is a potential, no matter how small, I think is important. I th- I don't think we can just dismiss fascism as a thing that could never happen again. That's uh, naive and dangerous. But at the same time, we can't just like call everything we don't like fascist, like anything that's even remotely authoritarian or anything that we just disagree with ideologically. I think that's a really da- uh, damaging uh, tendency as well. It, ideally, what would what would be nice to happen would would be to identify some of these precursors in a widely understood and agreed upon manner. I know I'm asking for a lot here, but be able to say something like, hey, listen, being this concerned about immigrants, that's it's probably not a good thing. It's probably not a healthy thing. Or, you know, being this obsessed with, uh, uh, you know, conspiracies of who's uh, running uh, global governments without any evidence whatsoever. Like that's that's got some stuff to it that I don't really like. Or even uh, to point out uh, the dangers of something like eugenics, which pops up its head every, I don't know, five years in some new way that everybody gets really excited about. And you kind of look at it and go, ah, that's, that's kind of creepy, actually. I don't know if I, if I like that all that much. Um, yeah. The topics that we talked about leading up to all of this, uh, I put everything in there for, for a reason. And I know we didn't necessarily touch exactly on every single one of them, but Social, the shadows of them were there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Social Darwinism and and eugenics and anti-Semitism uh, mm-hmm. and and some of the other ones that were like very specific to Italy and, and Germany. Like those are those are all there, and and we went really deep on them because like those are the things that are being exploited by these fascists. Those are the context for these fascists. Now, some of those have nothing to do with the idea of it ever coming around again, right? The the unification of Germany is no longer valid in terms of something we need to be aware of. Yeah. Uh, but some of them still, they, they kind of still matter. We kind of, we kind of got to think about them a little bit. So anyways, um, I'm going to do, uh, something that I don't normally do. I'll make a separate announcement about this as well, but I, I think partially to give myself a break and partially to give all of the listeners an opportunity, um, to, to really get into this stuff. I kind of like to do, a Q&A episode uh, in a few weeks, specifically on fascism. Like, if there are any other questions, that's fine, too. But I'd, I'd love to take some questions uh and and uh maybe i'll get a couple of people a couple of guests on to to help me out with those and just chat about it a little more casually but i I know we covered a lot of ground i know there's a lot of stuff missing and i know people are going to have a lot of questions about this so i I think that's probably what we're going to do next next time so i'll I'll just cut things off here um if you have uh, any questions maybe we can uh maybe i can deal with them on that episode and uh and we'll go from there because this has gone long enough but anyway, that is that is fascism. <laughs> yeah, again, I'm I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to do this uh, this series. So, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, bringing it home with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Fascism is insatiable. It's a system that only works in crisis and only works by advancing. It uses the language of victimization, prejudice, and conspiracy to make the electorate fearful and defensive, and then turns these feelings into violence and cruelty. Prosperity, stability, and harmony cannot be tolerated by fascism.
And most of all, fascism is ordinary. It doesn't invent any of these mechanisms, but rather exploits those that already exist in all societies. For that reason, we cannot think ourselves immune, but rather must try to understand it and guard against it. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that the damage from the Reichstag fire wasn't that bad. In fact, it destroyed the main dome and made the building essentially unusable, and it wouldn't be fully repaired until after the reunification of Germany in the 1990s. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee you there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Hi.